Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Three, two, one, go. Hey, guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is the Knife Perspective, number 071. Uh, shoot, I forgot to write a title for this one. Um, And if I just say the name, that's going to be like the giveaway. So, mystery guest, welcome to uh, episode number 071, really cool mystery guest. Fieldcraft survival. <laughs> Gave it away right there. Like they, they don't know who that is yet. Oh, they've Googled it already and they know. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good, Dan. Glad so, to hear it. Yeah, I was grinding a whole bunch of canvas micarta today and my shop smells really good. Oh, the sweet, sweet smell of burnt micarta. Yeah. Luckily, I was using some, some uh, zirconia belts from Phoenix Abrasives, and yeah. uh, that seems to really tear through it pretty well. A fresh yeah. belt, fresh 60 grit belt seems to profile that down pretty well. And I suspect that's a little more cost effective, too. Yeah, the I like the Zerk ones. They seem to hold up quite a bit better than the aluminum oxide. And I don't know, for whatever reason, the when I've tried to use like some people say to use the ceramic belts after you're they're done grinding metal, but that's just never worked for me very well. It's what I've done just because it's a way to extend the belt life. But if the, the Zerk are cutting better, you know, it's back to grind like belts don't cost you anything. Yeah. It, it's counterproductive. It's counterintuitive, but it will save you time and money in the long run. Yeah, I put up a post too um, for some of my used belts to try to pot them off at uh, the Badger Show because I feel bad throwing them away when some of the high carbon steel guys or Damascus guys can use them to rip scale off. And I had a whole bunch of people ask me for uh, taking them. So a bunch of people wanted me to box and ship them. I'm like, I don't really want to deal with that, but uh, I'm not paying you to take my old belt. <laughs> They said they'd send me some money for shipping, but yeah, uh, I found somebody local that wants to pick them up. So that's going to be good. We've got a local Smith Guild that uh, they just know they can come by and pick up armful per person. And apparently that lasts them like a year. Yeah. With their soft inferior. <clears throat> Sorry. Mm. <laughs> non-stock removal techniques you know it, it, whatever works for you man yeah i only hold back like a couple of incinerator used incinerator belts for profiling but i uh just got my big batch of knives in from new jersey steel baron for oh i saw the reel the uh the water jet and uh they turned out pretty good i was really happy with them i'm going a slightly different direction um new jersey steel baron yeah i've I've been doing business with first Aldo and now Pete since, since I was still in Georgia, like God love Aldo. He must've spent an hour and a half 
on the phone with me one time to sell me six feet of steel. Yeah. But um, I'm getting them water jetted, but I'm going to have my blanks trued up on a CNC before heat treat so that uh, I'm doing some cast handles. Okay. So that it is, it, it's almost a production one-to-one matchup, so I don't have to clean up the spines and match up the handles. Nice. It's going to cost me a little bit more, but I'm hoping the I'm going to save money on the labor side. Yeah. Yep. I uh, I figure or when I ended up kind of doing the cost of how much I figured the Magna Cut and CPM 154 was going to cost me, uh, ended up for the 77 knives, it was like $200 to get get them all water jet cut so worth it that was like two dollars and sixty cents uh blank or a pattern so not having to do bandsaw blades drill bits and belts and the four days that would probably take me to do 77 knives uh made it worth it yeah when i'm really when i'm really on my game i can profile in about six minutes so that'd be easily a day worth of profiling and then all the belts and bits you burned up. That was a solid investment. Yeah. And I don't have, I'm not burning my arm on any of those drill bit chips that come off when they get super hot. So I'm torn between panty waste and you should know, not let your bits heat up, dude. No, the you want it. You want the, the heat to go into the chip. That's when your, your bits are cutting efficiently. Oh, okay. Yeah, you don't want your bits. You don't want your bits hot. It's throwing the the metal chip from the tang yeah. that falls on my arm that then. Oh, burns okay. Me. Yeah, I I thought that was just the price of being a knife maker <laughs> and a man. <laughs> Tough. Yeah, but then then my wife's like, "Why do you have all these like scabs on your arm?" So, yeah, we uh, digress. Yeah, uh, yeah. You want, it's kind of my thing. Want to talk about some of our sponsors? I do. Um, but I'm going to mix up the order and see who can tell. And I'm going to jump right to Atlas. Uh, and not just because they've been hooking me up and Dan and Natasha, and especially Natasha. You know what? We're going to come back to that because there was notes and the shout outs. But Atlas Materials, it helps when you're doing, you know, when, you, when you're making that, that jump to bulk, they've got great bulk pricing. But, man, if I put uh, Juma, not Jumanji, but Juma scales on a knife, it, it immediately sails. There's something about that, that dragon scale texture that really sails. I like their crazy fiber. It's not just that they can do bulk deals, but it's the, the funky stuff they do that, that I really like. Yeah, I'm excited to see them at Plate Show coming up. So, As am I. You know what? That reminds me. I'm I'm going to assume you want to have dinner Saturday. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll send everything out. Awesome. Uh, uh, I know Natasha's listening, maybe not Dan, so he may or may not get an invite, but Natasha, she's definitely getting an invite. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> yep. And then we've got Jant's Knife Supply, and uh, they've got all your knife needs. They have uh, a great plethora of belts and steel and uh, jigs and handle material. Plethora. You know what this word means? Yes. What 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 does it mean? <laughs> uh, I forget it, the exact line from uh, <laughs> Three Amigos, but 
Yeah. Oh God, love you, you, you young, beautiful child. Real bullets. <laughs> I'll take those. <laughs> uh, the infamous El Guapo. Infamous. It means all those things that you said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's not just famous. He's infamous. In, infamous. <laughs> they spelled it wrong. Uh, oh God, <laughs> it may not entertain entertain y'all, but we. We're entertained as hell right yep. now. <laughs> that and Spies Like Us were two two like lesser known films that are just I find those two two films hilarious. The fact that you know Spies Like Us just lets me know that that I've got the right pot partner. We're we're simpatico. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd is probably one of my one of my favorite comedian actors. Uh, with Bill Murray, uh, I just find those two guys. Dana Carvey's another one that. Uh, he just makes me laugh uh, all the time. Man, I, the church lady will forever be branded into my mind. I still like Garth. I, uh, oh, yeah. I love Dana Carvey. Party on. Party on, Wayne. <laughs> it got my red vines. Yeah. All right, Jance. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Jance. Thank you, Jance, for being a supporter of the podcast. And uh, you can use discount code KP Grip for... 10% off your handle material at Jance and they've got a, a lot of handle material there. So check out Jance. You want to do the next one? I do. And uh, I'm going to go with Phoenix abrasive only because I just had to order some more shop rolls because in a few short weeks, the uh, Trudy that studied at the Torquemada school of physical therapy is finally allowing me to, to do some knife grinding which means I'm going to have to do some knife sanding. So I just re-upped with Phoenix Abrasives. And the price or the discount code KP10 actually saved me a significant amount of money on this order. Yeah. And they also have something else at uh, Phoenix Abrasives now. Do tell. They have sanding buddies and flat sanding sticks on their website. Oh. So you can buy them straight from Phoenix also. Look at you big time. Yeah, and Greg said he should have the Rhino uh, stick paper uh, for the Sanding Buddies uh, on there soon also. Outstanding. Yeah, and uh, I just gave sent Greg my uh, list of stuff, so I'm going to pick up a bunch of belts at the Badger Knife show from him. So Solid. It's good to know people. Yeah, and when you save yourself like 50 bucks worth of shipping, so that helps too. And let's not forget um, the the often underestimated but never underappreciated cage daily knives and dogwood custom knives. I mean, really, the the backbone of sponsors for okay, actually, our wives are the backbone of sponsors for this show. But you know, it, let's just call it cage daily knives and dogwood custom knives. <laughs> I truly, truly a premium spot, premier spot. Yeah. And like we said, uh, we want to talk about our dealers kit for cage daily knives and dogwood custom knives. You can, you can find dogwood custom knives at knife center and the cook station and blade HQ. And you can find cage daily knives at Northside cutlery also here in Chicago. Oh, you can also find hopefully cage daily knives at uh knife center here soon too. We've oh, they got, uh, they got deleted out of there. How'd that get out of there? Uh, I, 
I don't know. Whatever you put on the screen, Ron will read. (laughs) 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 So, all right. Um, We got Guild Watch and Knife Shows. All right. Talk about your guild. Guild. Oh, oh, yeah. I have a guild. (laughs) I'm the president of that guild. I should know more about this. South Carolina Custom Knife Makers Guild. Uh, we're going to be back in St. Matthews, South Carolina on April 15th. Uh, that's John Medlin's shop. He is forge heavy. So for you, all you hammer monkeys, this is going to be a, a great meeting. As always, uh, we are looking for new shops. We will help with setup. We will offset the cost. We would just love to let some of our members see a new shop. But in the meantime, April 15th at John's shop in St. Matthews, it is always a good time. Uh, he does a lot of stock removal. He's got a phenomenal grind room, but he does not just knives, but cookware. It is a great opportunity to learn some new techniques. So I look forward to seeing you all there. Yeah, we've got the Midwest Knife Makers Guild at the uh, USA Knife Maker headquarters in Mankato, Minnesota on April 22nd. Kyle Grang, Granhag, or I'm not sure how to, sorry, Kyle, I can't, or I'm not sure how to say your last name, uh, but he's a journeyman smith in the ABS and he's going to be talking about knife handles and guards. So he's got some, some really cool, um, videos and stuff uh on his instagram so you should definitely go check him out and check out the midwest nightmakers guild they're doing some cool stuff there and i'm glad to be a part of it look at you mr guild man yeah gonna be need to get started on my four knives for the national knife makers guild for atlanta so hopefully gonna get my voting member status this year down there at blade show that that again is blade show that's gonna be here before we know it uh, June 2nd through the 4th in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, you can come see us and you can you can find me at table three double B. And Dan is frantically trying to remember what his booth number is. I'm not even trying. I I won't remember. It's uh it's booth four, three. There's a five in there somewhere. You've had the same Dude. one for like the last three years. Dude, I have had so much head trauma. You would not believe it. <laughs> okay that's just an excuse i got a poor memory you know what tune in closer to blade show and I, i'll tell you my booth number check the show notes kyle will figure it out and put it in there see this is how we keep them coming back dude you, <laughs> you give them a little taste and then they got to come into the next episode to find out the details uh, totally marketing not uh neurodivergent dan <laughs> okay so Shoutouts and gear talk. It has come to my attention that the the sweet, sweet angel, Natasha, has been forced to listen to every one of our episodes. And I just want to take a moment and, and thank her. She has been the, the pivotal seventh member of our uh, our listening audience. And I just really want her to know that we appreciate that. Yeah. And that's Natasha from Atlas Materials. Yeah, I, I was afraid she was going to be embarrassed if everybody found out that she actually listened to this podcast, so <laughs> keeping it vague. She was one of the main supporters when I uh, was talking to him about uh, 
possibly doing a sponsorship and yeah she's she said she loves every show so thanks natasha yeah it truly appreciate it she has been phenomenal yeah she must have a really long drive car ride <laughs> a really low standard in entertainment is, is really all i can say yeah and uh i want to thank uh pulse rifle romance uh, they have done some really phenomenal uh, graphic design work for us. Mm-hmm. Contrary to uh, Kyle's attempts, you don't get to see it until Blade Show, but it is so awesome. <laughs> like, if, if if I knew that we were going to have the stickers that we would have, I would run directly to our tables. Yeah. Because it's going to be pretty freaking cool maybe we'll have somebody come by our table uh for the early bird usually i can just discount the the two hours at the start of the show because nobody's coming to my table yeah i have never scored an early bird (laughs) you know what swing by at like the hour and 58 minute mark of early bird and i'll give you two these awesome awesome stickers (laughs) nice uh, it, just for the record, we have started doing each blade show is going to be a, a different, unique sticker. So we're doing a limited run of stickers that Pulse Rifle Romance has designed for us. Yeah. Yeah. Tim did a great job for us. And uh, I'm really excited to, for you guys to see it. So excited. He's been showing it to people that really like, dude, you got to keep that a secret. Yeah, I've been doing some neener, neener, neener stuff. I don't think anybody's going to be able to come up with anything nearly as cool. So, dude, how I I thought I've explained this. The key to success is keeping the bar low. Yeah. If you let everybody know that you're competent right up front, then they expect competency. Yeah. If you don't show them that stuff, if you show them like the crayon drawing that I did, they were expecting this one again. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not judging, but see, they would have expected that level of simplicity and they would have worked to that level. Now you've put them on notice that like, we're coming out swinging. Yeah. Like you used to wrestle. I mean, you didn't let guys know that you were, you were competent. Did you, you let them think that you were a fat bumbling, just, Oh golly gee, poo bear kind of guy. I was just the, sh- the short, the short heavyweight. Yeah, and then you went for the throat, right? Uh, usually the legs, but yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were short. You couldn't reach, but it, <laughs> same concept. <laughs> yeah. Like, you just let everybody know that we got some Pulse Rifle Romance design stuff going on, and now they're going to raise their game. Uh, yep. And uh, if you guys can't get enough of Dan in the most recent episode of the Knives Templars podcast, Dan did a really good job filling in with uh, with them. The, he was the Pops Makers Mark uh, person slash uh, co-host for his episode. Did a really good job talking, and uh, I, I was surprised I didn't hear him cuss the entire show. So uh-huh. that's a challenge for uh, for him in this one. Chip had a lot of editing to do. I'm going to be honest. Actually, I I really enjoyed that. And I think I'm going to do some more. It was kind of nice to step out of the, um, you know, no one man is any one thing. And what y'all hear on the knife perspective is absolutely genuine. I mean, this is me, but this is one aspect of my personality. And it, it was kind of nice to do the, 
the Knife Templars podcast because I could kind of step out of, I didn't have to be Dan, the co-host of uh, Knife Perspective. I could, it was just kind of nice to to be in a different format. Um, go check it out. I, I think I'm going to do some more episodes. I mean, it was a struggle. I got to admit it didn't come naturally, but it was kind of fun. Yeah. And then I want to shout out another podcast. We've mentioned them a couple of times on the show before. Uh, Mike Moran and uh, Jason Ritchie and uh, Neil Punchard do a great job with the Catchbit podcast. Uh, they mainly talk about a lot of the, the dreaded slip joint word, uh, <sighs> traditional folders. Uh, Y'all can't see, but I just grasped my pearls. <laughs> uh, my, I uh, messaged Mike and said that if somebody says slip joint on his podcast, he should bleep it. So in this episode, he actually bleeped it a couple times when <laughs> uh, they re they did it. But uh, for episode 26, they had uh, one of our favorite people, Mark Zaleski, on. And he talked uh, quite a bit about buoys and different stuff and a little bit more about how the how his presentation at the Alamo went uh, back uh last uh almost a year or a little over a year ago now i think it was uh, so definitely check that one out there are not a lot of regrets in my life but i truly deeply emotionally regret that i was not there for his uh presentation to the alamo society yeah uh both for entertainment value and personal security you got any other shout outs uh that's pretty much it cool. you want to you want to introduce our guest you know i i do all right, so tonight's guest, um, I can't actually remember how I met him, but I've known him for, what, I think 15 years now. Uh, certainly back in the, the E2E days, uh, it's been a great relationship. I think I've taught him a few things. I've certainly learned a lot from him. A uh, little different direction uh, tonight. You know, we've been really focused on the maker side recently. Uh, this is going to be a chance to talk about some user, get some user feedback, uh, and a couple of different, um, couple of different ways knives are used. So, without further ado, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Kevin Estella. How are you doing tonight? That is a fantastic intro, and you know, you you set the bar pretty high. I thought you were really going to screw up that intro, given the the lead up that you had. You know, before before we jumped on the air, you you were doubting yourself, Dan. But I had faith in you the entire time. So the, the key to my success is setting the expectations low so that you can then exceed them. That That's yep. words to live by. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Excited to have you, Kevin. Uh, I know I've read your or read most of your book and got you to sign it uh, a couple years ago. I think it was maybe 2021. Well, I think it might have been pre-Rona, right? It might have been. Yeah, I can't remember. It's all kind of a, it all kind of gets blurred after about a year. Well, you know, they say doesn't. brain fog is one of the, the characteristics of the Rona. So you might still have yeah. the Rona. Um, yeah. If the Rona is a thing, I don't know. but Yeah. <laughs> kind of funny. We, uh, Kevin and a group of our guys and I kind of crossed paths over the weekend, I guess two weekends ago. Mm -hmm. And a couple of people whipped out their, their copies of the book and the, the pen. And it was kind of funny watching Kevin be flattered and a little uncomfortable and like not quite sure how to handle. You want me to sign a book? 
Yeah, it was pretty fun making Dan so uncomfortable when I made him sign his uh, Kephart issue of Knife Magazine. Well, I was afraid I was going to misspell my name. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Okay. um, You know, we got a formula. It's worked for the last 71 shows. So so let's, let's see if we can stick to it tonight. Early years and family. Kevin, where did you grow up? Early years and family. So grew up in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, definitely a New England boy at heart. You know, I uh, was the youngest of three kids. You know, my dad is a physician. My mother uh, was my father's uh, office manager. They did that for many years. And in Bristol, Connecticut, I had the luxury of being able to hike at the Barnes Nature Center. So that's really where I first learned how to hike and get into the great outdoors. I was not far from the Farmington River where, you know, I really got into canoeing and kayaking and fishing and you know, Connecticut is one of those great states where, despite the politics, we're an hour to the coastline to do amazing saltwater fishing, and we're a couple hours away from the mountains up in Vermont to do some skiing, and not far from New York City and Boston. So uh, I pretty much grew up in the, the center of it all. So I have recently learned the most vital question for you uh, Northeast boys is chowder, cream base or tomato base? Oh my God. I'm a cream based dude all day. Uh, okay. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Uh, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't understand the tomato based chowder. Yeah, that's not chowder. That's, that's soup. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> soup. Some sort of broth. Yeah. And uh, apparently I've been pronouncing it wrong my whole life. Apparently it's chowder. Yeah. Chowder. <laughs> it's wicked good. Yeah. Um, although, you know, when you say wicked, it's more of a, like a Boston or a New Hampshire thing. Connecticut, you know, we're kind of like mayonnaise. You know, we go on a little bit of everything. Um, I don't know if we particularly have an accent. Uh, there are some people that try to pull it off, and it's like, dude, you're from, you know, Willimantic. You're not from Boston. Or, you know, you're uh, you're from uh, Bridgeport. You're not from New York City. Uh, you don't have to try to come across as you have an accent. We don't really have one. We don't have a sports team. Um, so we're, we're kind of an odd duck. Like I said, we're like mayonnaise. We just go on everything. Yeah. Oh, God, that was painful. I promised that I wouldn't be off color or vulgar because Kyle has had. I didn't really appreciate how much uh, stuff things that uh, (laughs) Kyle has to edit out of every show. I'm I'm really, really trying to to do my best. You did a good job on the Knives Templars podcast. Yeah, well, you know, Chip's a nice guy. I didn't want to make his job harder than it needed to be. (laughs) Thanks, Chip. (laughs) <laughs> Need to have him on here. We should. Just, just every every show have Chip on the side. <laughs> Nothing like a little side of Chip. Um, what was the first knife you ever had? First knife I ever had uh, was, well, the first knife that I was ever given or the first knife I ever acquired? Because if Ooh. we're talking about the first knife I ever acquired, it was nothing more than just like a the little blade that's on the end of a nail clipper like that the, that's used for like cutting cuticles. I used to run up to Federal Hill Green as a kid with that little sharpened, like it was like an inch long blade. And I used to sharpen sticks with that. And I, I thought I was the coolest kid ever. So that was the first one I acquired out of like my dad's like medicine cabinet. But the first knife I ever received was a knockoff Swiss Army knife. Uh, it wasn't even a Victorinox or a Wenger. It was one of those that you would get from like, I think it was like uh, 
Reader's Digest. It was like four ninety nine, and it was like a Swiss Army style. So anytime you see the word style, you know it's garbage, right? Like military style cord. It's not even real five fifty cord. Um, so I think that was my first knife that I ever received, and it was like when I was about six years old, five or six years mm-hmm. old. But prior to that, I mean, I was running around as a little kid with that stupid sharpened thing, and I probably cut myself like three or four times, but never told my parents that I did that. <laughs> nice. I I got one of those uh, uh, Swiss Army style knives out of the ca- the like Campmore catalog, yeah. where in uh, or maybe it was in the back of Boy's Life. I sent off like twenty five dollars or whatever, and it was this like Swiss Army knife that probably had like sixty things on it, and they were all terrible. So yeah, I remember yeah, that was the Swiss Army knife. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Campmore used to be the the magazine back in the day or the catalog back in the day. I remember when it used to be uh, black and white, like newspaper yep. format. Yep. And uh-huh. that was like the coolest catalog to get. You're like, dude, I want a Sierra wood zip saw or stove. Like, yeah. it was just so cool to see things drawn out like that. But that was that back, was that was that before was, the internet. Yeah, yeah, that was back in my Appalachian Trail days when I was doing uh, a lot of backpacking and. I'd get all excited when the new Campmore came in. Yeah, actually gave you something to read and look at. Yeah, Not I was going to say I was going to say I left it in the bathroom, but I didn't know if we were being that honest. <laughs> uh, How did you get it? Uh, you, you talked a little bit, but was there like a formal introduction into how you got into to being in the outdoors or were you kind of like the rest of us where your parents just threw you out of the house all summer? Yeah, so I mean, as a kid, like my dad was, uh, or my dad's from the Philippines. And, you know, I learned a lot from him as, as a young man, because, you know, I wanted to be like my dad, you know, I think a lot of us want to do that. And, you know, in Connecticut, uh, everyone thinks Connecticut is like, uh, filled with a whole bunch of cows. And there are parts of it that are very rural and agrarian like that. But, you know, I grew up in a, technically in a city of like about 68,000 people, but it's a very green city with very unique neighborhoods and and places to go explore. So to get into the great outdoors, it wasn't difficult for me to go to parks and jump over the little streams that would, you know, flow through the parks and, and learn how to fish from my uncle Ray. And I mean, it it was natural, you know, and I grew up during, I mean, I was born in 1980. So I grew up during like the heyday of all cool things, great outdoors, right? Like I grew up when MacGyver was on television and the fall guy was on television and the A team. And, you know, I grew up with He-Man and GI Joe. And I mean, there was no such thing as, you know, there are little boys and little girls. And then there are little boys that think they're little girls, like in no disrespect to them. I'm just saying like, that was not my generation. My generation was, if you're a boy, you better look like He-Man when you grow up and we use sticks as guns and we played army and chased each other around the uh, playground. Like, like I grew up in the generation where you would cut a hole in a wiffle ball bat and you would shoot bottle rockets at each other because that's just fun. Right. Or (laughs) you'd have, you'd have pellet gun wars where the rule was you only pump once and you only shoot below the waist and you Uh run around the woods or you play flashlight tag and you could trip each other up with fishing line and you never complain. Like, you never went home and said, oh, my God, I got hurt over so-and-so's house. It was just like, you got hurt, you sucked it up, you rubbed a little dirt in it, and then you went out and you did it again the next night. Like, Yeah, you, you got me this time, but you best watch out tomorrow. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And like, and the funny part was, it was almost like a rite of – it was definitely a rite of passage. And that was back in the day when like parents would 
play with the kids too and, and make fun of them. And like, I remember one of my good buddies, he used to call the three of us no nuts, dumb nuts, and uh, <laughs> no nuts, dumb nuts, and uh, what was the third nuts? Uh, but I mean, here's a dad who is basically like a like a grown kid, you know? And I mean, if you were to say that to a kid today, oh my God, you know, you're, you're offending my child. Like, no, we thought it was funny to be called dumb nuts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was also descriptive. Very yeah, true. Al- yeah. Almost like the red foreman from that 70s show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Red was like a softer, more mellow version of my dad. Yeah. Um, basic training was a really nice vacation after living in a strict household with Jack Eastland. Yeah. Huh. The more you know about Dan. <laughs> it's starting to make sense now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Jack Eastland is such a strong name too. Like that sounds like the name of the character that would stop a bank robbery, you know, like in a detective <laughs> movie, Jack Eastland. Yeah. Which, well, you- which also happens to be my oldest son. So, uh, I'm going to take it. Maybe you should have him be like, uh, that be like a pen name like start writing books crime novels oh yeah there you go dan you can have chat gpt write the whole thing for you well you'll know it was chat gpt because it's all spelled and punctuated correctly it could <laughs> be your editor you never know oh God. when david anderson was at uh truth about knives mm-hmm. the joke got to be that uh some of my articles were really just a word bank that they had to just randomly pick words from did you ever fill or type in some of those five from the grinder answers yeah no that was all me i mean they to be fair they had to fix a lot of spelling and punctuation but that was actually all me but there were some there's some quotes from me where david is like you know it's a word bank all of the words are going to be yours just i'll handle it (laughs) i know exactly what he means (laughs) So, oh, so Kevin, what's your favorite type of woods? Oh my gosh. You've taught all over the country and America's yeah. got just about every type there is. So, yeah, I would say like, if I had to choose my favorite type of woods, it's up in the Adirondacks, uh, Northern latitudes. So like Adirondacks, Vermont, uh, New Hampshire, Maine, uh, Michigan. I, I really, really enjoyed learning up there. Like that's, if you were to tell me, Hey, you have to go somewhere and, and thrive off the land, I would say there. Like I explored and I had some fun teaching in the desert the past couple of years working out in Utah. Um, but the desert never really felt like home. You know, like I got comfortable out there and I started learning what's out there, but there's just so much sagebrush and so much juniper and not as much diversity as you can find north of the Adirondacks. And I mean like I'm talking up by like Slush Pond and Fish Creek and you know these areas that are so diverse and such a rich, rich eco ecosystem. And, you know, I mean, there are animals everywhere up there and the fishing is fantastic. Like those are the woods that I really feel like I'm home when I'm in. And, you know, there have been a couple of times where I've been away from there for quite some time and I've gone back like after COVID going up to the old survival school I used to work for, for the first time, it just smelled so familiar. Uh, those are the woods that I prefer the, the Northern forest. Um, how did you get into teaching? I mean, the first time I ever taught was when I was in my teenage years and I was a swimming instructor. So I spent many years as a lifeguard and to get like an extra buck 25 or buck 50 an hour, I became a a certified swimming instructor. So the funny thing was, you know, I was teaching swimming lessons and 
you know, all the single moms came down and I was like the only guy that was teaching. The Kevin Estella swimming instructor is hey. now neighborhood oh. pool lifeguard. I, I, I see it now. I wasn't oh, quite sure, on. but I get it now. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so Stifler's well, mom. Yeah. Something like that. Well, the funny thing was they, they either thought like they, they couldn't figure out like, why is this one guy, the swimming instructor, you know, I was there with all, all women and all the little kids, like this, the moms would bring the little kids over and I'd, I'd be like really polite and be like, Oh my gosh, I'm happy to teach your kid. The kid would take one look at me and be like, no, <laughs> they're deathly afraid of me. He's the mean one. Yeah. He's, he's the big brown one, you know, give me the, the cute blonde girl. Um, <laughs> you know, I can't argue with those instincts. I, I know, yeah. I know, I know. So, uh, so I started, I started doing that, but then I was also teaching canoeing and kayaking around the same time. And, you know, I always enjoyed teaching and I never had like a formal education in it until I decided to become a, an actual history teacher. Um, and for quite some time, I was thinking law school when I was in college because, you know, it was something that just seemed natural, you know, learn history. I really enjoyed studying history and I, I learned I learned so much about the Constitution, and I really enjoyed American history and the Constitution. I was like, well, maybe it should be history. Uh, I'm sorry, maybe it should be the law. So then 9-11 happens, which is my senior year in college, and I'm living less than 50 miles from Ground Zero in, in Fairfield, Connecticut. So we could look out across the sound, and we could see the smoke. Uh, yeah, and that was when my plans kind of were thrown away uh, because the idea was I was going to go to law school after my senior year, but we didn't know if we were going to be drafted. We didn't know if there was going to be a war, you know, on our, on our soil. We didn't know what was going on. So when it came time for me to take my LSATs, the law school admissions test that fall, like my brain was scattered and I didn't score as highly as I did on practice tests. So I was like, well, because I didn't score as highly, maybe I should just delay and I'll try it again in a couple of years. So I went to grad school to get my master's in American studies. And I was like, look, I'll just, I'll get my master's. It gives me time to kind of decompress, maybe try it again. But while I was in my master's program, I started substitute teaching since it allowed me to basically be a, a paid babysitter behind a desk and I could read and I could write my papers and what, whatnot. So at that time, you know, I was bouncing around from school to school subbing. And I remember at one point I taught a lesson, like I actually taught the lesson. Um, I followed the sub plans and I was like, I can do this. So I took the exit exam just to see if I could, if I knew the content. And the funny part was I passed the exit exam with flying colors. Like I was two points away from like this distinction level, which I didn't even really know was existing. Hmm. I didn't even try. But then the thing that scared the crap out of me was I knew that I'd have to take the entrance exam, which included math. And even though I'm half Asian, I am like the most atypical Asian when it comes to math. And math is my nemesis. So you did, the half you didn't get is the math half. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> seriously. Like I'm a good driver, but I wish I were a bad driver and good at math. Um, so, well, there, goes, uh, there goes half our audience. Yeah, it's okay. Hey, listen, I'm Asian. I. Look, we're down to three people as it is. It's not going to make that much difference. You know, and I, I believe that I, it's, you can definitely make fun of everyone. It's South Park rules, right? Like, there's no such thing yeah. as a sacred cow. So everyone is, is unsafe when it comes to me throwing shade. But um, in any case, I, I decided to become a teacher after I passed the, the exit exam. 
And I was ready to go. I was teaching uh, Western civilization at a local college. I was a, technically a college instructor. And I got a position working at one of the high schools. And even though I could teach Western Civ at a college level, I wasn't highly qualified by the state of Connecticut to teach at the high school. So I had to go back and get my certification. And in 2006, I started teaching as a certified history teacher. So uh, oh, cool. I was supposed to go to law school, decided not to, got my master's in American studies, did a bunch of historical research, and eventually made my way to teaching instead. Yeah, because I, I remember seeing the post when you in, ended your like high school yeah. teaching thing. So I was super excited for you to see where you went from there. Yeah, that was a uh, a bittersweet day for sure. Um, you know, and on one hand, I didn't want to leave the kids. You know, the kids make the job. And, mm -hmm. you know, people don't get into teaching to become wealthy. You know, you, you get into teaching because your heart's in it. And when kids would come by and say, you know, Mr. Stella, I, I didn't know what to do in my, with my life until I met you, you know, and you inspired me to do this or Mr. Stella, um, you know, this is my daughter, uh, parent conference, right? It's my daughter. She never had a positive male role model and she didn't like men until she met you. You have been like the father she never had. It's like, oh my God, wow. right? like your, your heart just, I mean, they're, mm. they're squeezing your heart at that moment. It's like, oh my God. So I miss that. I, I really miss knowing that I was making a difference. I don't mm -hmm. miss the bureaucracy. I don't miss the woke culture. Um, I miss my coworkers. I love them to death. Um, super, super, you know, so much respect for those guys. But uh, I, I don't miss some of the nonsense. Yeah. My wife's an elementary school teacher. Uh, she teaches dual language. So it's Spanish and English. And both of our boys are in dual language, too. So it's been like really awesome with my wife being able to help them and they're like starting to talk Spanish back and forth. I'm like, I'm really going to have to like learn the Spanish thing. Just learn to <laughs> yeah. pick up when they say bendejo. Um, <laughs> I know that one. Yeah. yeah just make sure talking stuff. about you. <laughs> um, I was, I've got to admit, I was very flattered when uh, Kevin reached out to me about a, uh, a cake knife. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Classroom. Yeah, it was at a time when, when stuff was getting a little rowdy in schools. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, about uh, what Mr. Estella can do with a cake knife. But at first, I'm like, a cake knife? I don't think Yeah, it would be like a French-style chef's knife with a false edge. And uh, I need it pink or... I'm like, oh. <laughs> Sorry, I lost these cool new headphones that Kyle gave me. You're, you're still going to find a way to get that microphone away from your face. <laughs> I am. Anything I can do to make your life just a little bit more difficult. But yeah. uh, that was the moment I was like, oh, you want a cake knife for your classroom? Of course. And to this day, it is the only chef's knife I've ever made with a uh, with a false edge and that fine a point. Oh, my gosh. That, that was definitely uh, uh, a very purpose-driven culinary tool um, that not never a lot was of, pastry. Not a lot of uh, cake knives that are hot, have uh, bubblegum pink and white handles. Yeah, and sadly, that one uh, ended up at my ex's place, so uh, I, I will never, ever see that cake knife again. It, it, hopefully, it, it gets used well, but it will never be used for the intended purpose 
Um, and maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I'm just, that's one of those things where if you needed it, I was glad I made it for you, but I just assume you not need it. Yeah. And that's, that's usually how it goes. Right. I mean, so that whole idea for that cake knife was, you know, it has lower weapon uh, signature, right? It's more tool signature. It would look like something that you would grab out of your kitchen and you would use it to cut a birthday cake or, I mean, you'd use it. It, it avoids the term premeditated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Like as opposed to me pulling out, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a finely honed tomahawk or, or, or another tool that has very high weapon signature, that cake knife was really designed to just kind of fly under the radar. It, it could be in your supply closet and nobody would question why you had it. Exactly. And honestly, if you saw my closet at work, like I had atlatls and I had <laughs> staff slings and I had a, um, uh, various like clubs from around the world, different hardwoods and, you know, being a geography teacher, I could show it and say like, look, check this out. This is from, you know, this is from Africa. And, you know, this is a shillelagh. <laughs> and no one ever questioned me. They're like, oh, he's just the crazy history guy. Um, Notice the similarities in shape and structure. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> you know, this is not meant for uh, beating the snakes in the grass. Yeah. Funny, these walking sticks from entirely different continents have the same shape. <laughs> yep. Um, so no one ever found the cake knife. Um, so we've kind of, we've hinted at it a little bit. Um, I guess we'll talk a little bit on it. A lot of people know you as an outdoors instructor, mm -hmm. but not a lot of people know that you're, uh, you're educated in a breadth of knife techniques. Uh, what, what styles did you train in? So I'm a Filipino martial arts instructor, uh, in Sayak, Kali. And if people are wondering where Sayak, Kali uh, came from. It is the Philippines. I'm half Filipino. And if people are wondering, why does that name sound familiar? Well, if you're following the Chris Pratt series on uh, Amazon Prime, the terminal list, Chris Pratt carries the Sayak R&D Hawk in that show. And Jack Carr, his logo is the two cross tomahawks. And that tomahawk has a rich culture in the, the naval special warfare community. So that tomahawk was created by one of my instructors, uh, Raphael Kayanin, and Daniel Winkler, right? And Daniel Winkler has been a good friend for many years that I've established through SIOC. Um, But I've been training in SIOC since 2007, and I'm an associate level six instructor. There are fewer than 100 of us, I'd say, in the world, uh, definitely fewer than 100 of us uh, associate level instructors. And I've had the you know, privilege of training around the country, California, Florida, New York, Texas, uh, even in the UK, uh, teaching people from all around the world, Filipino martial arts. And it's not your average type of martial art where, you know, you see the van parked out on the road and it says a free month of training and a free gi, you know, and a belt. You know, we don't necessarily go out and try to build our numbers because, Sayak is truly a tribal culture, you know, and I hate the bastardization of the word tribe. When when you meet an actual tribe and you, you join a tribe and the tribe selects you, it's like, you know, there's a true chain of unbroken deeds, right? You help the tribe, they help you. They elevate you, you help elevate them. 
And, you know, within a tribe, there's common language and within a tribe, there's, you know, common purpose and mission. And, and, and that's what SIOC is. Um, and I will say that so much of what I've accomplished in my life is through SIOC training, you know, meeting the right people and, and learning about blades and, and understanding how to use them and, and recognizing the formulas that are applicable from one uh, aspect of life to another, right? Like SIOC readiness formula, we can use it to describe combatives and, you know, how you can be ready for a fight. But I can also use SIOC readiness formula to describe how you can prepare yourself uh, and make ready for going out into the wilderness. Um, so Filipino martial arts, that's my my blade education. That's, you know, a total system. Um, and then, you know, over the years, obviously, Brazilian jiu-jitsu has played a large portion of our part of my life. I'm a purple belt. Um, and then Western boxing, you know, through Raisu martial arts, Jeet Kune Do philosophy. So I'm just a, a martial arts junkie. Uh, Kali, uh, a lot of people, I mean, it's a very effective open hand technique, but most people associate it with, with edge weapons. Really, it, obviously, there's, there's axe and short sword technique, but most people really think of it as a, a knife fighting technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what do you look for in a quote unquote fighting knife? So, and I know that's a huge open term. Oh, yeah. There's everything from dueling to prison fights, but. Well, I'll tell you the, the baseline, right? The, the bare minimum, I would say at least a three inch blade, right? At least three, three and a half inch blade. And if you look at the, the Sayak knives, if you look at the knives that are made by our guys in Atienza Kali, uh, and if you look at like the uh, Amtak blades guys, um, you know, Bill Rapier, who's a Sayak guy, you know, all of them have very similar attributes. You know, most are spear point blades. Most of them have a tip that's center line of the handle. Most of them are handle heavy. Um, you know, they, there are knives that are meant for slashing motions, right? Like people would associate like a Bowie knife with a slashing motion. Well, slashes are not as effective as thrusting. And we know this. I mean, you can look at I'm killing exactly right. And in the whole idea, like knives are, are not meant to be defensive tools where you're using them for less than lethal purposes. Right. I mean, if you use a knife on someone in self-defense and they're able to tell, hey, this guy pulled a knife on me, I, w- I wasn't doing anything. Well, now you've got to argue that the guy truly was mugging you and trying to assault you, rape you, you know, do whatever, kill you to get to your kids. And always make sure there's only one story, <laughs> not the lawyer in me talking. Right. Um, <laughs> remember, I didn't go to. School. I mean, that's what I've heard. Yeah. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Exactly. Just... Right. <clears throat> exactly. So uh, I didn't go to school for that. Um, but I'll just say, like, if you are going to use a knife, you should be able to use it effectively. And what is effective is penetration. Um, and just look at the way that warfare has been engaged over the years. Right. The, the Roman gladius was a thrusting sword. You know, you look at the, the pike, the bayonet. Oh my gosh, right? The pike, the bayonet. I mean, you're not slashing with a bayonet as much as you are thrusting with it. Um, uh, even even on, like, you think about it, what is an arrow, right? An arrow is basically a very small yeah. blade driven by a very long handle. Um, and it's thrust. Moving fast. Right, right. So, you know, as far as what I look for in, in a blade, I'm looking for a knife that's easily concealable, easily, uh, uh, 
able to be retracted quickly. The uh, the blades that you're looking for, you're looking for something that has at least a three and a half inch blade, something that has uh, handle heavy, easily accessed, good sheath system. I mean, that's what I'm looking for. I don't necessarily care if it's uh, stainless steel or carbon. I don't necessarily care if it's a Scandi ground or if it's a saber ground or a full convex or a flat ground knife, because the point is more important to me than, say, the belly. Um, now, if we're looking at a larger tool, like something like a hatchet or, or a tomahawk or a bolo, then those are different thrusting motions, um, but they're thrusting motions that end up with nonlinear uh, retractions. And it, I mean, I can get really geeky right now, um, but for my everyday carry blade, they all seem to look alike because I'm following a, a very strict uh, standard of what I need. And I'm pulling the tools that I know are available that meet those standards and putting that on my, on my person every day. And handle heavy, you want that so that it's, it's nimble in the hand. So you don't have the, the, the kind of the tip drag. Yeah. So, so the whole idea of handle heavy is it's kind of like loading a punch, right? The whole idea of handle heavy is when you like weight your back leg and throw that punch and you transfer the energy from, from the back to the front. Um, Handle heavy means that it's not tip heavy and, there's better accuracy. So imagine if you were to put like a roll of quarters in your hand and, you know, there's no doubt, like in South Africa, I had to dispatch uh, an animal with a blade. And when a blade is done correctly, it doesn't require a lot of energy to get through skin. I mean, skin has the tensile strength of cardboard. Um, So it doesn't require a lot for a blade to penetrate. But when you do have it handle heavy, it's effortless. It, It just goes right in. And uh, yeah, obviously, spear point is your preferable thrusting shape. Um, I had always heard, and I'd love your opinion on the balance between defense and function. You want your tip either centered or no more than one third, or excuse me, no more than two thirds up from the belly on your on the height of your blade. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like, if you look at like a traditional puko, right, something where it's like a trailing point. Uh, or you look at something where the tip is in line with the spine, that's more of a utilitarian blade, right? Or if you look at a knife that is the total opposite, where the tip is uh, at the bottom of the handle, right? Like on the bottom of the tang, and it's more of like a worn cliff, you're going to get a lot of pressure out of that tip. Like when you're uh, engaging your uh, the three amigos, your three fingers, yeah. your middle, your ring. And yeah, your like a... Like a scribing cut, Correct. you get a lot of, of leverage right there at the tip. Right, right. So again, like if you're looking for for utility purposes, above that two-thirds point up the blade, you're going to get more of a slicer. And if you're looking for something where you're you're using the tip to scribe below that third, the bottom third, you're going to get that. Um, but quite honestly, like if you're looking to drive with the tip, it should be in the center or just above or just below. So even something like, I mean, you look at this, uh, you know, the sacks, right? Or you look at other historical designs where the, the tip of the blade, I mean, even the, the Ramier's wood lore, I mean, look where the tip is on that one. It's not the perfect knife for all those applications, but it's a pretty good design for all purpose. And I think that one blends the the utility and the potential dagger shape well yeah so you could get away with like a 
a, a nice flat drop tip that just comes down about a third. So you're not centered like a true dagger, but it's, it's that balance between functional and defensive. Correct. Correct. And you think about okay. it, right? Like look at the, look at the design concept behind all of the military knives in the late 20th century. Uh, K bar, right? They call it the K bar fighting knife, but it was 90% tool, 10% weapon. I mean, for you to have to pull a K bar, you'd have to lose your primary and your secondary. You'd have to lose all of your friends that you're in that firefight with. You'd have to lose all of your air support. You'd have to lose everything. Uh, and your E-tool, the most <laughs> underrated weapon. <laughs> and then you look at, you look at like the, the Camillus pilot survival knife or the Ontario pilot survival knife. And then you look at, you know, all the other knives that came out, like even the, like in the eighties and the nineties, like the, the Frobus M9 bayonet, um, you know, those knives, like the Which bayonet. I have pleasure of carrying. Yeah. Like the, the bayonet was, even though it, they're calling it a bayonet, it was a quarter inch thick and it really was so heavy. It made the, the front of your rifle barrel so much heavier. Like you could thrust with it, but it really was a field knife. Like the M9 was more of a field knife than a bayonet, you know? And actually with the M9, the one thing that it was good at was cutting concertina wire. Oh, with that, that feature. Single purpose it ever worked, right? Yeah, with that feature where um, you attach it to the sheath, right? Yep. Yeah. It, um, and they had to redesign rifle, the sheath because some guys got their thumbs cut. Um, yeah. Um, and as rifles got shorter, the bayonet, well, the combination of rifles getting shorter and pistols getting more reliable, the bayonet is... It, it, it's on the backside of its functionality, I think. You know, but there is something really cool about a guy that will take like an M7 bayonet and put it on like a Mossberg 590. Like you've got a lot of hate in your heart if you're you're rocking a 12 gauge shotgun with a bayonet in your house for home defense. Like that's the <laughs> ultimate get off my lawn tool. You know, <laughs> you're not wrong. You just have to you just have to walk out with like lipstick on and. Maybe a dress and no pants. Yeah, you know, and ask if I'm pretty, and and then you know if they decide to continue attacking instead of run away out of sheer fear, then you know, rack that baby. You know, there's a lot to be said for the the Joe Flowers theory of uh, home defense. He goes with two machetes. Joe, two machetes. Like, oh no, I sleep in the nude. When I come running down the hall, butt naked with a machete in each hand, nobody's gonna stand and fight. <laughs> <laughs> What a what an image! It's kind of like uh, Christian Bale in American Psycho with the chainsaw, um, yeah. which is a very obscure reference unless people know that movie. But yeah, you don't want to you don't want to mess with the dude that takes the time to put on like Converse All Stars, but not pants. You know, <laughs> that guy wants traction. Uh, what's he going to do to your yeah. body? <laughs> um. We focused a lot on blade. What are uh, what are some characteristics on handles that uh, that you look for in a defensive blade? So, to understand what you want in a defensive blade handle, you need to look at, um, you know, what is it that is desirable, like a, a desirable attribute. So, defensive blade, you're not concerned about hot spots from prolonged use, right? So, you look at bushcraft blades, survival knives, and those handles are generally very smooth. They're designed not to have hot spots uh, or raised edges or anything that's going to provide too much grip or traction because then you're going to get blisters. Well, the total opposite is true of a defensive blade because you're not using it for a prolonged amount of time, ideally. 
And if anything, you want it to be as aggressive as possible because in any fight, even if there's not bloodshed, there's still sweat. And if it's prolonged and you're sweating and you're, and you're using your tools, there's always a chance that you could ride the blade, right? And riding the blade is when tip of the blade stops moving, your hand continues moving, and your fingers go up from the ricasso to the, to the tip and you cut your hand. Yeah, and you get that in the crease of your finger yeah. to get that. Yeah, so... That sounds like a bad time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not one that you'd write home about. Um, so now, you think about that, like, in that case, dimpling or uh, cutting, checkering into the handles, like, that's where that makes sense. Like, a lot of guys are in, into taking, say, like a Glock pistol and dimpling or, or laser cutting extra texture in their Glock pistol or putting skateboard tape on their, their Glock pistols. So when they achieve that master grip, the gun stays put. Uh, that way it returns back to the, the target where they last had it before the recoil. Same is true of a pistol, or I'm sorry, of a, of a blade. So defensive blade, I want something that I can access quickly. Um, I'm not a fan of, of blades that have skinny, in Filipino martial arts, we call it the puño, but the butt of the knife, I don't want a, a, the butt of the knife to be thinner or less have less diameter than, say, where my index finger would be in a forward grip, because I'm grabbing like a traffic cone in that case. If anything, I want something that has like a hooking feature or some type of uh, open, kind of like a, a like a quillion or something to catch the back of your hand when you withdraw from a thrust. Correct, correct. And what we're we're doing in in most of the combatives because the the future of combatives is dual weapons uh, bilateral, right? So pistol on one side, blade on the other, and you can be an absolute terror to someone who is fixating on your on your pistol and you draw the blade with your other strong hand. Or if they fixate on that blade, you draw your pistol from retention. And I mean there's a it is there's a school here in Greenville that teaches single stick style with like a two pound weight in the other hand. Yeah. Um and the idea is when you're out of rounds, your pistol becomes a one or two pound bludgeon. But they train single stick because they say you should have a pistol in the other hand but they train using that pistol as a bludgeon. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, I've done the whole, like, let's sit across from each other, let's drop a gun between us and wrestle for the gun. But the rules are always, okay, we're going to wrestle for the gun, but can we introduce an additional weapon? Because And don't gouge my eyes. And <laughs> Yeah, so, so there's usually no striking allowed, and there's usually no, like, I'm going to pull a training blade from my waistband and if I pull that training blade from my waistband, are you going to respect the fact that I touched it to your neck and, or are you going to pretend like, Hey, this is like Superman rules and you're immune to a blade. So that's really the future of combatives is people are going to be carrying pistol on one side, blade on the other. And that's the answer to gun grab situations. That's the answer to times when like I, the expression that drives me nuts is when people say, um, never bring a knife to a gunfight. It's like, never, never. So back of the cab, he's got a shotgun, you've got a box cutter and you don't think you have an advantage. <laughs> you know, like there are times when the blade is going to be superior. There's going to be times when never bring only a knife. Exactly. I'll take that. That's a better statement. Yeah. So yeah, that, 
I don't know how we got on the topic of that. We kind of walked all the way from desirable handle oh, attributes to this, but yeah. it is late at night. So you never know what I'm going to say. There's a guy in Atlanta. Um, I trained with him when uh, he and a couple of his instructors were getting judo qualifications. And I can honestly say if he's within 21 feet of me and I've got a gun and he doesn't, I'm going to shoot myself and save us both <laughs> trouble. And uh, part of his evaluation of a blade and some of his training standards is he said fresh warm human blood has viscosity similar to motor oil but his deal is you should be able to dip your hand in motor oil grip that knife and stab it into a four by four basically not ride the blade yeah he said because especially the first time you get an artery or something your hand is going to be basically covered in motor oil so he likes a really aggressive to your point if you try to use it for an hour, it would cut your hand up, but he uses really sharp, aggressive texturing on the, the blade. Cause he said after that first cut between sweat and blood, you're basically covered in motor oil. Yeah. And you know, here's, here's what people don't realize. Like I've had people say like, Oh, well, have you ever had, you know, blood on that blade? How do you know? And I'm like, yeah, I have had blood on it. And they're like, Oh, but you'd be arrested if you, if you ever stabbed someone. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like I've had blood on it because I've tested it as a hunter. Right. Like there's no reason why you shouldn't learn what your blades do on animals that you've just shot. You know, like as you're you're processing that animal, see if you can if you can actually do work with that blade. See if you can cut with it with that reverse grip. Like see if you're gonna be able to retain it or if that motor oil is going to cause you to lose confidence in that tool. So you know, it's just very comical. Like I'm not I'm far from the Jason Bourne, you know, wannabe guy. I will always ground my training in some type of logic and say, look, I've done this before, or, you know, I have experience. I know what this is doing because I've tested it very, very, you know, realistically. Um, and then obviously one of the things that we always say in SIOC is, you know, our, uh, our training, you know, is something that we can trust. The funny thing is, is we are never afraid to demo. We're never afraid to pressure test. And if someone says, oh, well, I'm just going to pull out my folding knife. We'll be like, okay, let's, let's pressure test that. Let's see which one is better, which makes more sense logically, fixed blade or folding knife. But we're going to put serious consequences in play where we'll do the 21 foot rule that you, you just talked about. I'm going to charge you with a simulated stick, or maybe I'll use a rattan stick. I get to crack you. If you do not get that blade out, I'm cracking you. And it's amazing, even if we don't intend to to crack the person, but we just hint at consequences and we add the pressure, people fumble. And honestly, where they don't fumble is when they draw the fixed blade and they present it tip on and they're they're ready to go. You know, um, it's oh, even if it's just a simple flick, that flick is adding one step. Draw set is entirely different than draw flick set. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's a it's a moment in time. It's a beat in time. It's kind of like carries- the guys that are like, let, let me let me put it this way: guys that carry a folder and think they're going to use it for self defense are pretty much the same guys that carry a pistol without a round chamber. You know, it's like uh, I've gotten in so many arguments about it works better when it's loaded. Yes, and, that is true. And the magazine isn't loaded. In battery is loaded. Yeah. And it is fun. Like I've had a chance through Fieldcraft to play the role player, the bad guy, when we do the force on force classes. And 
knowing what the scenario is and dictating the scenario for the students to then respond to, being the one that gets to call go, basically, with the fight math formula. Like if I can, if I can move before you move, I already have an advantage. And to watch people try to draw their pistols as opposed to already have their pistol pre-staged in the scenario, there's no way you're catching up to me when I grab the top of your shirt and I pin it to your body. And you're like, how do I get my gun out? And now I'm just tapping you in the forehead like this. And it's like, you realize all of those are, are actual punches or elbows at this moment in time. But what will you do differently next time? You know, it's like the whole why someone can draw and fire faster than someone can engage with their weapon already drawn. Yeah. It takes three tenths of a second to react. It takes two tenths of a second to move. Mm -hmm. So whoever's initiating the action has at least a tenth of a second advantage. And when things are moving supersonic, a tenth of a second is an eternity. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, so uh, just for the listeners, I've probably referenced this before, but the, the on killing that, Kevin and I mentioned it's a book by Colonel Grossman. Thank you. Uh, there's two. There's On Killing, and then there's I can't remember his second book, but it is On Combat. Thank you. It is a deep dive. It is a scientific research on. Uh, he touches on conditioning response, uh, but as far as what we were talking about, the slash versus the stab. He goes into historical detail, psychological research on why people prefer to slash versus stab, but why stab is a more efficient motion. Uh, if y'all want to check it out, especially if you think you're going to carry a weapon of any kind for defense, it I highly recommend reading it. That's that's our little side note. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible book. And I, I would just caution people who put on a pistol or put on a blade. Uh, or start this journey of self-defense, right? Because once you learn some of these skills, you become highly capable very quickly. And the consequences, again, are very, very high. And you have to think not just of your actions, but the second and third order effects of your actions, right? If anything, you know, I'm not trying to glorify, you know, I carry a pistol and a blade and, you know, I train martial arts and I think I'm a badass. Like, that's not the way you become. If anything, you become very non-confrontational. If anything, you learn de-escalation skills. And one of my instructors, Tuan Tom Kyer, he says, you know how many people I walk by every single day and I just wish they would say thank you? And I, the first time I heard it, I'm like, thank you for what? He's like, thank you for not ending their life. You know, like, thank you for not pushing the front of their face through the back of their head. Uh because if anything, like you realize you don't want to go through the legal rigmarole. You don't want to lose your job when your job now classifies you as some crazy person. Like you don't want to potentially lose the relationship, you know, with your, your, your kid and their, their friend, because you had to take out their dad who the dad was being drunk and stupid. Like if anything, you learn ulterior ways of solving conflict. So that book is Fantastic. A friend of mine in Atlanta was involved involved in an absolutely 100% righteous shoot. Uh, involved a, a carjacking, and the the jacker person involved in the carjacking engaged him with a weapon in his hand. I mean, textbook. It still cost him fifteen thousand dollars in legal fees. Um, 
a, a concerned citizens group pushed uh, for there to be charges. So he had to hire an attorney. He had to defend a civil suit. I mean, it was an absolute 100% righteous shoot, and it still cost him $15,000 in legal fees to get clear. Wow. So a, a, apart from the emotional, and that's a whole nother issue that most people aren't ready to deal with, there's a significant financial investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we should also throw in the disclaimer that nobody wins a knife fight. Yeah. Um, somebody might get cut more or less, but unless you really know your shit against somebody that really doesn't, you're going to get cut and it's going to be unpleasant. And you think about this too, right? Like how do you define win and how do you define fight? You know, if I could leave the listeners with one thing about combatives, you know, we, Psyox reputation is all blade all the time, which people think, right? They have a misunderstanding of all blade all the time. They think that that expression means we only use knives. We only use knives, right? Like we don't have a grappling system. Well, meanwhile, Tuan Tom Kyer is founder or one of the high ranks of like combat grappling. And, you know, we have a plenty of uh, black belts in our, our curriculum from Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? All blade all the time means in any fight at any time, a blade could be introduced. And this is as simple as you get into a scuffle in the woods and someone picks up a stick, they swing it at you, they break it, and now they've got a sharpened stick. And now there's a blade in, involved. It's a wooden blade, but it could still puncture. Yeah. And there are people that train boxing and there are people out there that train just grappling, but they're not training weapons. And they're doing a disservice to themselves since homeless populations protect themselves with blades. Very easy to access. All of Latin America, most of Asia, all bladed countries. United States, you can find blades in hardware stores. You can, you can, if, you, if I said to you right now, find me a sharp object that you could use like a blade, you can make one. You know, the most common weapon used or most common blade used for bodily harm in the UK? Steak knife? Yep. <laughs> $2 steak knife. So, so again, like you think about it, right? Like how do you define fight? Do you assume that that fight is going to look a certain way because it probably won't end up looking that way when it happens to you? Are you training for reality? And at, to your point, Dan, who wins? If you have to go through that $15,000 lawsuit is, or, or, or just getting legal fees, is that really winning? Now, some people might say, Hey, I'm still breathing. I'm winning, right? Other people define winning differently. Uh, some people might say, "I walked away. I never got into the fight. That's the win." Yeah, the guy called you a pussy, or he called you whatever. Guess what? You still are here. Your family is intact. You have all the blood that you started the fight with still in your body. You know, like there's no room for ego, and I think that's the important message. There was a time, so I did the stay-at-home dad gig. When that was still weird, like when I took the boys to the uh, the park, especially if it was a new park, it was a three, two, one. Hello, officer. No, I'm not a pedophile. These are my children. Like it was, and it occasionally led to conflicts and sports bars and that kind of thing. And one of my my mental de-escalations were, you know, they'd start getting chippy, and I'd look at them. I'd be like, all right, here's the seven ways I'm going to kill him, but I'm not going to do that. I could do that. He's got no idea of it, 
But because I know I could kill him in these seven ways right now, but I'm choosing not to, I am in the position of strength. Um, it was just a little psychological. You know, just because you can doesn't mean you should, but it helps to know that you can. Yeah. And who's in control? You know, if you're the one that maintains control of the scenario and you don't allow someone's actions to cause that emotional response in you, guess what? You're still in control. You're still winning. It's like when you get into a discussion with a, a person, a, a friendly debate, and they get angry and they attack you personally. Guess what? You've won. <laughs> you know, like, how do you define winning? So that, that's the important question, you know, and, and that's one that I would just tell everyone to have that in your mind, right? Like winning doesn't have to be you standing over the pile of bodies like John Wick, right? Winning could be you just walking away, walking away. I don't care if you go home and you make a list like Steve Buscemi and Billy Madison, like people to kill, just don't act on it. Like you can have a list, totally fine. <laughs> just don't act on it. Don't yeah, let anyone know it. Don't let the cops find it because, you know, memories can be evidence. But yeah, and like don't say, maybe don't say kill, maybe say kiss, like people to kiss. Like maybe that's why he put the lipstick on. I don't know. You know, engage. That that was a, a handy term back from my my uh, my green days. <laughs> um, yeah, you never heard about uh, killing, but you sure as hell heard about engaging targets. Yep. Um, all right, we have gone a little bit of far field. That's okay. Yeah, just to bring it back, uh, defensive. The thrust is psychologically harder to do, but mechanically vastly superior. So you want a piercing tip, something within, preferably centered, but within one third of center to the blade, um, something, some sort of guard to protect, prevent you from riding up the blade. Or, or a textured handle that, in lieu of a guard, provides Super aggressive. Grip. Yeah. Um, and something to help give you a mechanical lock as you withdraw the blade, because... The two theories of knife fighting that I have heard from people that I deeply respect is one, just keep stabbing them till they stop moving. And the other is stick it in as deep as you can and work it around till they quit moving. Wow. Um, and to that, I would say, know your target. Yeah. Um, just like <clears throat> if someone were to say, well, shoot them. Okay. Well, shoot them where? Well, do we care about shooting in the arm and the leg? Do we know what happens if we shoot someone in the leg? Is there a chance it hits the femoral artery? Um, you should have targets in mind of where that blade is going, the same way that you have a target in mind when you identify your front sight or your red dot and you superimpose it over the target, right? Like, you should know where you're going. I've heard people say, stab them in the face. Well, is it through There's the nose? There's a lot of bone there. <laughs> yeah, is it the nose? Is it the cheek? Like, what's your target, you know? Um and Sayak is known for teaching timers and switches. So be very target focused. It's all interesting. Yeah. The, uh, hey, okay. We're creeping Kyle out. So we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, bring, <laughs> uh, we'll bring it back to, uh, all right. So that's, that's on the, the defensive blade side, mm -hmm. outdoor ed. That's, uh, yeah, that's what people really know you from. Yes. Uh, we talked a little bit about how you got started teaching in general. How'd you get started in the, the outdoor world? So 
outdoor world, I was teaching canoeing and kayaking and I was teaching overnight canoeing and kayaking classes and camping and teaching the bushcraft that I learned when I was, I was younger. In my early 20s, I decided to formalize the outdoor education. And, you know, I went to like Eastern Mountain Sports Climbing School and Winter Mountaineering School. And, you know, I went to uh, Maine Primitive Skills School and Jack Mountain Bushcraft. But down at Terrell Hoffman's property, I met my late mentor, Marty, who ran the Wilderness Learning Center. And I went to his course and I was like, this is it. Like, this guy knows his stuff. He's the real deal. And I just continued training with him, going on trips with him and his wife and all of our friends, canoe camping. And the whole time he was testing me. And while he was testing me, you know, he was also kind of just saying like, hmm, does he know this? Does he know that? And at one point he calls me back up to the school and, you know, as he's introducing himself and we're going around the campfire at one of the courses, uh, he goes, by the way, that's Kevin. He's my new instructor. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm teaching now, right? So I would do like a week on, a week off, or two weeks on and, and a week off. And I would do that every summer from 2007 to 2012. Um, and that's really where I got my my start as a, you know, quote unquote, professional survival instructor. 2011, I started my own company just so I could run things under my banner and get some good tax write-offs. And I did that from 2011 to 2020. And the whole time, just constantly, constantly testing gear, training, uh, you know, doing bushcraft trips, traveling, testing stuff in Sweden and Norway. And I mean, it's been a labor of love. What was your company's name? Uh, So my company was Estella Wilderness Education, uh, EWE for short. Okay. I just wanted that in there before Dan switches it to a completely different topic. Before we're talking about, you know, (laughs) eviscerating people again. and. Look, I'm out of Adderall, okay? Y'all are just getting, y'all are getting natural Dan. Natural Dan sounds like, uh, I don't want to go there. It, it sounds like a content that would be on the dark web or something. Um, okay, moving on. I, I can send you the link. Okay. <laughs> um, what, uh, what's, what's been your goal as an instructor? So my goal as an instructor, I mean, I just love sharing information. My goal from day one is I want to make you a better version of yourself by the time I'm done with you, right? Make you stronger. And I was thinking about what word it was. Was it, do I want to make you better prepared? Do I want to make you, uh, you know, more knowledgeable? Do I want to make you more skilled? At the end of the day, it's about strength. And I'll quantify that strength by saying this person is, or this person is able to survive outside longer because of me, or this person now has a 100% better chance of, of accomplishing a task than they did before. Cause I've given them the skill set to do that, right? They never could do it before. Now they can do it on command, right? So my goal as an instructor is to make people stronger. And it is the ultimate compliment when people reach out to me and they say, I don't feel afraid anymore walking in the woods. I carry my kit. I have a skill set. I know when sunrise and sunset are, I'm good. Like that makes me feel so darn good because it's a way of honoring my late mentors, my dad, and basically all of the the work I've put into it. So make people stronger. You've 
been in the outdoor ed industry for arguably at least two generations, as far as we think of, as far as the outdoor community, if not more. Um, how has it changed since since you got started to today? Oh my gosh! So 1999 Blade Forums, right? My name on <laughs> yeah, my blade my Blade Forums name was like Estella two one six. Uh, I think that was my name because that was my room in college. And I met Brian Jones, who was from Connecticut. That's some Pixar stuff right there. Yeah. Yeah. So like I think about the days back then and like at the end of the 90s, it was all about like Cold Steel Trailmasters and Tops Anacondas and the the Bussy uh, Battle Mistress. Well, that, right. That was kind of getting from the the hunting to the single tool, not bushcraft yet, but it was going to that, that one tool answer kind of theory, wasn't it? Right. And it was really popularized by like the late Ron Hood, you know, Ron Hood was a big knife fan. And you look at the the big knives from the eighties, you look at Crocodile Dundee, you look at Predator, right? He had the Rambo. Train and on. one. And we Rambo didn't have hollow handled survival knife. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, I'm a fan of those. Um, so you look at those big knives and that's what people associated with surviving it was like you have to have a big knife to be a survivalist and then over the 2000s that's when you started seeing shows like survivor man man versus wild uh dual survivor and the stars of those shows carried smaller tools and uh, that was like the american audience but running around the same time and even before that the british audience they were carrying i mean ray mears was carrying a four inch blade the wood lore and Morris Kahansky was carrying the Mora. So there was always a small blade influence out there, but it was overshadowed by these big blades. Man, I cannot preach the good word of Morris Kahansky enough. Right? But, Very I practical. Mean, I, and that's what I loved about him. I will go on about that before, but I just wanted to make sure he gets his, his moment of prestige notice. I mean, yeah. his... His concepts, his his blade use philosophy, obviously, I've, I've deeply drank the Kool-Aid on. <laughs> yeah. So so that was one of the changes, right? The blade change was not noticeable. Another change that we saw, there was definitely more of an emergence of kit-based stuff, uh, like small pocket kits and everyday carry kits. Like you think about the items that were popular in the uh, 80s and the 90s and even the early 2000s. And we're talking like, you know, Doug Ritter pioneered pocket survival kits, right? Doug Ritter was way up there with his Altoids 10 kits. And then all these other companies came along and followed suit and some copied his ideas and never gave attribution. But when you walked into sporting goods stores back in the day, they might have like a cheap copy of like a British you know, pilot survival kit, like a tin, but you didn't have the the multitude of, of those items. Mat, very match heavy in the 90s and the 2000, early, late 90s, right? It's all about matches. Well, you could still strike anywhere matches back then. Oh, yeah. MacGyver, right? MacGyver yeah. used to light him off his fingernail. Yeah. Um, uh, side note, you can also use your teeth, your thumbnail, the seam of your jeans, your zipper. your zipper. Yep. 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 Um, so, yeah, like, even the fire starters, like the Gerber strike force. Yeah. Like when it was sold by Gerber, like that was in 95, 96, 97, like 
no one heard of uh, L- uh, Light My Fire, LMF, right? That was all British. That had to come over here with the Swedish you know, fire seals. So a lot of the gear changes have happened in the past 15 years. Very different philosophy or perspective of gear. You know, it seems like all those shows like Man vs. Wild, like uh, Dual Survivor. And I mean, I always say that companies that are out there that also teach survival skills, I don't consider them rivals. We might have different ideas, but our rival for teaching survival skills isn't another company. Our rival are the people that say stay inside or, you know, look at your your device. Yeah. I mean, I know more people now that are using the term five C's. I don't agree with candling as a C. Like That's just not my thing. I use a flashlight. Um, You know, I'm thinking that is not a term you want to look up on the Internet. The, The five C's? No, candling. Oh, okay. That that sounds like something that could take you in a direction you're not prepared for. Well, back in the day, they used to use uh, candles to uh, treat ear ailments, and they'd wax your ears and pull it out. Like, it was gross. Um, but, uh, like, there's no doubt, like, survival is more mainstream now. After COVID, it's okay to be a prepper, you know? People were talking yeah, about I, prepping during COVID, and it made me smile. made me giggle. Um, but... Yeah. It's very Beth occasionally gets a little annoyed with some of my expenditures on uh, gear and preparation, but she's also really bad weather makes her uncomfortable. And every time there's a terrible storm and we have an issue and I run down to the basement and I've got whatever we need, she kind of looks at me. She's like, okay, maybe we can expand your preparation budget. Yeah. And you think about it, right? Like she's happy with that because you're capable, you're able to, to solve a problem. Think about if you were called a survivalist in the mid nineties around the time of the Alfred P. Murrah building getting blown up in Oklahoma City. Oh, the FBI would be l- watching your mail. They'd be listening to your phone. So, so get this story. This is a true story. So my late mentor, Marty in the mid nineties at the height of American survival guide, right? Height of American survival guide. It had around 200,000 subscriptions now, I write for some pretty big magazines now, like there's one in particular has about 600,000, but we're talking about American Survival Guide in the 90s, pre-internet. This was a major survivalist network. And in the back of ASG Magazine, they used to have a survivalist directory that was all anonymous where people would openly talk about, like, I am looking for other anti-government people. Like, they were straight up militia in the early 90s. Yeah. Well, in the 90s, Marty was teaching a class, U.S.-Canada border, and he's taking the guys on a plant walk. And Border Patrol, like we knew the Border Patrol guys up there because the school was on the border, right? About 400 yards of the school is on the border. Well, the Border Patrol agent comes down and he's looking down the class of students. They're walking on the dirt road and Border Patrol agent looks down the way and he goes, hey, Jeff, hey, Jeff. And Marty's like, (laughs) I don't have a Jeff in my class. Right. I don't have a Jeff. And he's looking at the border patrol agent. Like, why are you calling that guy? Jeff? That's George. Right. George. So finally (laughs) Jeff steps forward and he goes, Oh, Hey. And he talks to the the border patrol agent and then the plant walk goes on. Now, Marty goes over to George or Jeff and he says, do you mind telling me what that's all about? And George or Jeff reaches in his back pocket and he pulls out his badge and he says, Marty, I'm with the federal Bureau of investigation. 
my assignment this summer was to check out survival schools and make sure that everyone was on the up and up, right? Survivalists, big problem, Timothy McVeigh, right? So he goes, I just, I'm very happy to know that you're a good American patriot. You're not anti-government, whatever. And, you know, I really appreciate everything that you've taught me. I've actually learned a lot here. And Marty, being Marty, says, well, I want you to go back and actually tell the FBI that you're not certain and they need to send agents to every one of my classes, <laughs> every one of my classes the rest of the year. So, like, Man, talk about perfectly handled. Yeah, you know, and, and like, there's no doubt about it. There are people out there that are on the fringe. There's no doubt about it. I've met them. There's a-holes in every group. 100%, right? Like, like I'm, and you can't let one apple ruin the bunch, you know? But unfortunately, that's what does happen. And for all the crazies that are out there, there are hundreds of people that are good human beings. Just like, like, let's relate this back to teaching in the high school. I've had so many people say like, oh, but what about all the problem kids? And I'm like, Every year, a teacher's course load might be 100 to 150 kids. Out of those, there are maybe five that are really terrible. But the vast majority are good kids. So the whole survivalist thing, that was a phase that was fun to live through. You know, and I would joke every once in a while. Picture this one. I had an American Survival Guide t-shirt. I still have the damn thing. It's yellow. Um, It was white, but it's yellow with like sweat and like, the 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 bench press bar across my chest but on the back it has an american now you're just bragging yeah right so (laughs) it it has the the american flag on the back with an ar-15 i used to wear that to high school when i was in i was 17 years old like you do that today and you are going to get suspended you know yeah like it's changed if you if you chew your pop tart into a shape of a gun right yeah right so I am usually very situational aware. Um, I have gone to some therapy because I perhaps am sometimes overly situational aware. But I was a, a buddy of mine was was throwing a party. Um, the governor was going to be in attendance, uh, and I was there helping set up. And the advance party was there, and they were eyeballing the <laughs> like to the point where. I, I right on the edge of look, you got a problem, and it it was it was starting to bother me, and I get home and I'm about to get in the shower and I look in the mirror and I'm wearing a shirt that says Wolverines, and there's a it's the silhouette of a hand holding an AK-47 up. Yes, and I look at the shirt, I'm like, oh, okay, no, no, I, I get it now. I'd have been eyeballing me too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a great movie! Like. I've mentioned this before in interviews and and around the campfire. I think that movie more than any other movie made me want to get a buck knife just because when it came time to escape the Russians, what knife went across the counter, the box that just said buck knife. Yep. And it was like, that's gotta be the knife of a survival instructor or a survival guy. Like if you're going to fight the, the communists, that's the knife, right? Like, so I think everyone owned a buck 119 at some point, you know? Oh, absolutely. A black and silver. Yep. Um, and I'm not going to go too far into the weeds, but, uh, you know, after World War II, we we're debriefing a lot of the, the Axis generals just to learn what was their thought processes. And uh, we we're debriefing Japanese generals about what their plan was to invade the continental U.S., 
And to a man, they said, there was no plan. And our debriefers were like, what are you talking about? We were at war. You had no plan? And they said, if we invaded the continental U.S., there'd be a rifle behind every blade of grass. Yeah. That we were never going to invade the continental U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. Sorry. Sorry. I, di- I diverge. Uh, Red Dawn reference just gets me worked up. Oh, my God. It should. It should. I mean, <sighs> and the fact that they tried remaking it. Oh, blasphemy. do not speak that blasphemy. Uh, and they're also remaking Roadhouse. Blasphemy. It, it, you can, do, you re, do you remake uh, Michelangelo's uh, Stallion? Do you recarve the David? Do you repaint the Sistine Chapel? No. These are masterpieces for a reason. You, you cannot restrike lightning. I, I just it, wonder it, how they're going to, they're, if they're going to like remake the Dalton character. Now, if they make the character like, because I know it's going to be Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, Jake Gyll- if Jake Gyllenhaal is like Dalton's son from like the hot doctor that was in that movie. Mm-hmm who's now a bouncer, like, okay, I get so, it. No, so Dalton is now going to be the PR or the uh, HR representative, and he's going to be giving lectures on de-escalation. And, uh, oh, my gosh. Be polite until it's time to not be polite. Don't assume their gender. Be polite. <laughs> uh, Okay. Um, so, so we've kind of talked about how the industry has changed. Kyle, Kyle is like <laughs> trying to keep us on such a straight and narrow. And he's, I think he's realizing like, oh my God, both of these guys are like a bunch of seagulls just flying around. Like, oh, I have to keep Dan on, on track all the time. So people don't even bother sending me hate mail anymore because they've realized it just fuels me. They send it all to Kyle yeah. now. So, like every so often, he has to wade through it and be like, uh, "Hey Dan, here's the top fifteen complaints. Um, do, do you think we could do something yeah. about that?" Or we, I finally <laughs> seen it enough. I'm like, "All right, Dan, we got to deal with this." <laughs> All seven of our listeners are a little upset. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about the the change in theory of outdoors. So there'd be a correlation to the change of theory in knife. Um, we talked on that it went from like the Rambo knife to the um, more of a, a more a minimalist, easy to carry knife. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it went Rambo knife, big knife, one tool option, a smaller, easy to carry knife. Uh, where do you feel like we're, we're settling in right now? Uh, I think the everyday carry community has really taken over. Like if you look at what's selling, it's accessories. You know, people are wearing paracord bracelets. They're wearing necklaces that are sharpening stones. Like you're seeing everyday carry really, really taken over. Um, You're seeing people dressing kind of like in a hybrid fashion. Like there are still going to be people that dress like, you know, the forest battle gnome. Um, and like totally not blending in, uh, you have people that are going to, uh, you know, try to do the, the Jack Bauer thing or the Jason Bourne thing. Um, but I think as far as like the survival space is concerned, you're seeing a lot of hybrids, you know, people that are carrying the, 
the Kephart, you know, trinity of tools or, or the, the Nesmuk trinity of tools, you know, where they're carrying a chopper, they're carrying a, either a multi-tool or a Swiss army knife and they're carrying a belt knife, right? Um, you're, you're seeing folks that are now, I think being influenced by the super steels, like more than ever. I mean, I remember super steels back in the day were like 440 C, mm-hmm. you know, and, and now the super surgical stainless. Yeah. Right. Like surgical. Um, so now I think the trend is what's old is new again, but old designs being made with these super steels that are almost impossible to sharpen with anything but a diamond stone. But you don't need to sharpen them for weeks on end. Yes, yes, that right there. Y'all can't see it, but Kyle is holding the pinnacle of outdoor knives. Yeah. That would be the Kephart in Magna Cut. Yeah. Yeah. That, so what is old is new again, right? The Kephart <laughs> yeah. blade with Magna Cut? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've had a theory. Um, I don't claim it is mine, but it's a, a theory that, that I came to on my own. Other people have. I agree with it. If a pattern has been around for hundreds of years, there's a legitimate reason. The easiest way to improve on a pattern is modern technology. Mm-hmm. Lighter, stronger, thinner. Like If you take a proven shape like the Kephart or the Bollocks knife or the Mora or one of these patterns that have been around for a long time, if you can make it lighter, you can give her better geometry with modern materials. That's that's the obvious route to take. So apply that to bullets. Yeah. Right. For a while, nine millimeter. Oh, no. Nine millimeter doesn't perform. We got to go 10 millimeter. We got to go 40 Smith and Wesson. We got to go 357 yeah. SIG. Look what we're back to now. We're back to nine millimeter because the bullet with better technology is performing as well as all those others. So to, that's perfectly to your point. Yeah. Once powder technology caught up, nine millimeter was the perfect diameter. It was a, a really functional diameter. And now we've got powder that makes it perform. Mm-hmm. And no slow tips and fragmenting rounds, but that's all for another podcast. Yeah. Well, I've heard according to uh, Sleepy Joe that the nine millimeter will actually blow out both of your lungs. So that's why yeah. I carry it. You know, like it's, I, I want to blow out lungs. Um, see, I, I prefer a 22, which will only kill you oh, instead yes. of double kill you. Ah, of course. So is um, that. No, it's a double, it's a double barrel 22 because I don't want to be tactical. Is that, uh, who was that one bullet that was like machined out of like solid copper that was nine millimeter that had like tray car rip was, was it the, the rip. Rip round yeah. or something like that. Yeah, rip yeah. is that still is that um, still a thing or? Uh, not really. No. If you want to see some nasty rounds, check out the. And I'm not sponsored by them. Uh, check out the the Honey Badger. Okay. Um, from Underwood. Ooh, I like it just based on the name. Yeah, nine, 90 grain bullet, and they are works of art, hmm. and they're devastating. Uh, we want to talk about brutal, uh, the dangerous game rounds. Oh yeah, Garrett Hammerhead. Uh, I have a uh, so Thompson Contender and certain Rugers, the forty-five Long Colt. You can load to a four fifty-four Casul. <laughs> um, put a dangerous game round in there with a steel plate. 
you know, 350 feet per second or 350 grains moving at like 1900 feet per second. Yeah. It is absolutely brutal. Yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> um, and speaking with some experience, the, the guy that went salmon fishing in Alaska. Mm. Um, hey, we have completely just like, not just right turned. We've like, double hairpin turned off of the show notes. Let me see if I can bring this back to like what <laughs> we were we talking about outdoor survival about. Uh, school stuff. So yeah, it, school. I'm too cool for school. You have something about knife podcasts. What were you asking there? Oh, no, I was saying after we talked about how uh, the industry has changed since we're a knife podcast, we should talk oh. about knives, which is a novel concept. Actually, you know, I, I'm going to put Kevin on the hot spot here. We may not be friends anymore, but, uh, Hey, Kevin, what's bushcrafting? Okay. I've come to terms <laughs> with this. And the way I understand this, right? Because the, the question is always bushcraft, survival, survival is better than bushcraft, bushcraft is better than survival. And like people think about it like they're two separate entities. The deciding factor of what is what is based on urgency. So you think about it. Bushcraft is living skills. It's living with the great outdoors. Do bushcrafters know survival skills? 100%. Uh, a bushcrafter may over-engineer an elaborate teapot holder, but they know how to carve with knives, light fires, they know how to build shelters, they know how to survive. And you look at the bushcrafting communities around the world, the Yanomama tribes, right, of, of the Amazon. You look at the San... Bushmen of the Kalahari. They're all bushcrafters. They're all survivors. Now, is survival bushcraft? Not necessarily, right? Survival is a sense of urgency where you're addressing an emergency. And if you don't address an emergency, you die. Survival is like bushcraft with calorie limits. Right, right. And there's, there's urgency. Like you need to unscrew yourself or else it's going to get really bad. You don't have three days to build a shelter or. Right. So I always say, like, picture the iceberg. What you see above water is survival. Bushcraft is the knowledge below. Survival would be like. That's solid. You can eat. You can eat anything that is like any edible berries that are uh, segmented or they, they come in an aggregate. That's like survival knowledge. Now, bushcraft knowledge would say, OK, not only can you eat the berries, but you can acquire the yeast from the stem of the blackberry and leaven bread with it. Or you can use the leaves from the blackberry to treat female menstrual issues in a tea. Now, are those survival needs? Not necessarily, but they're living skills. That's bushcraft. And same thing is true of like, you know, uh, look at dandelion, right? Dandelion is an edible. You can eat it. Mm -hmm. Well, Bushcraft is not, or I should say survival is not taking the dandelion root, putting it in the oven, baking it till it turns dark, dark brown, and then grinding it to make a coffee substitute. Well, one is survival, one is bushcraft. You have obviously never lived with my wife. <laughs> 12 hours without coffee, and it is a survival situation. Oh, no doubt about it, man. And I'll, I'll say that that coffee substitute is not much of a substitute. Um, hey, I, I grew up with uh, parents that lived in Louisiana. I'm used to my coffee being half chicory. Oh, my gosh. Post them, right? <laughs> uh, community house. Yeah, yeah. 
So bushcraft, less urgency, survival, extreme urgency. Um, bushcraft is a much larger uh, study. Survival can be very narrowly defined. Bushcraft is homesteading and survival is keep me alive for 72 hours for someone to find. Me. Correct. Yes. Okay. That's good. Um, and you, you use the term fieldcraft for your, your current school. Yes. So fieldcraft survival. I'm assuming you chose that term for a specific reason. Well, keep in mind, I'm not the founder of fieldcraft survival. Um, oh, okay. I'm just the director of training, but fieldcraft is another term that takes bushcraft to yet another level. Okay. So as you alluded to, like I have a background in, in Filipino martial arts and in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I also have a very, very long background in training firearms, SIG Academy, DeFore Performance Shooting, Amtac Training, Gunsight. I've won the Silver Chicken, you know, top shot twice at Gunsight. Like, I'm a shooter. I love firearms. You training. went to the, the Walther School, too, didn't you? Uh, no, not Walther. Um, SIG. Oh, Webley. Web no, I'm sorry. I'm confused. I thought you did one of the long-range shooting classes uh, as well. So I did, I did SIG Academy. And I okay. see, so yeah, I've shot with SIG, you know, their thousand yard range, but, uh, no, I've never, I've never done Walther. Um, although Walther makes a beautiful firearm. So, so why fieldcraft fieldcraft is even a broader term than bushcraft. So if bushcraft is living in the, the natural world, fieldcraft is understanding how to operate in not only the natural world, but the urban and suburban world. Fieldcraft is dealing with urban threats, like additional people fortifying your home in a lockdown scenario, uh, understanding how to bug out of a city, right? Understanding how to operate communication devices. And, you know, it, it's a much larger scale. Uh, defensive driving is field craft, right? Defensive driving, not so much in bushcraft, right? Maybe off-road driving in bushcraft, but field craft would be like, how do you drive at speed, you know? Aim for the back axle. Oh my God. Yeah. Pit maneuvers all day. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, like, that's fieldcraft. Uh, it's a, even a broader study. I think that's a better answer than I was expecting. I was oh, come really on expecting. now. Give me some credit here. You know I was going to rehearse this for you, man. I feel, I feel like I need some <laughs> fieldcraft being in the uh, western suburban or suburbs of Chicago. So. Oh, my God, yeah. That's close quarters combat. That's, that, that's an aspect of fieldcraft. Well, but we've that's... got a little homestead. We live on an acre. So we found, like, a a little spot that, like no city wants to claim. So we're on a dead end road. Here's a perfect example of field craft in action. Look at that train derailment in Ohio. You know, like, are you going to sit there and set up a tarp shelter and, and, you know, build your teepee fire? Absolutely not. Are you going to grab your go bag, load up your vehicle and go to a bug out location? Probably. I would say that you're never going to find the word bug out location, egress, uh, rally point. You're probably not going to find that in a traditional bushcraft book, but you will find it in a fieldcraft manual. Yes. One of my prouder moments, and this may make me a, a small man, and I'm okay with that. I'm 5'9 on my driver's license. Um, when we were up in Pennsylvania, we had they had an ice storm. And down south, we get those three, four times a year up there. They weren't prepared for it. We were out of power for two weeks. Um, we were on well, but the well pump 
needed massive power. We had a lot to, to deal with. But my wife's office was run on solar, and it was where the research lab was. So they had all of these backups. So she would go in, shower at work, work all day, and then come home. And, you know, day 10 or 12, she's hanging out with, you know, PhDs and business executives. And they're talking about how they've lost all their food and they're trying to figure out how to go to the grocery store. That's what are you talking about? You lost all your food. Well, power's been out for 10 days. We, everything's spoiled. That's um, my college dropout husband took Ziploc bags out and filled them full of snow and just stuffed them in the refrigerator and freezer. We we haven't lost anything. Um, And that kind of resonated with me, the difference of thinking in a field craft or a bushcraft mindset versus a a modern world mindset. Yeah. The teaching your mind to have that flexibility, be it bushcraft or, or field craft is, is really the key skill. Yeah. And people just don't know how to uh, laterally think and come up with solutions. I I just, it doesn't, It doesn't give me a lot of hope for our society, but at the same time, it gives me uh, job security. Yeah. Yeah, Darwin has some theories on that. Like that big hurricane that was it Sandy that hit like New York, New Jersey. They said, yeah, they said after like three days, people were like dumpster diving and stuff for food. Like nobody had anything prepared. I know some, I know some people that left New York during COVID. And they were talking about the, the newer apartments don't have kitchens, that they had little kitchenettes, but they weren't the lifestyle in that area was you just went out to eat three meals a day because it was just down the street. It was a ground floor of your building. So when everything shut down, there were people that were living in apartments that had no kitchen. Gosh, oh, crazy. <laughs> There's been kind of what at least I perceive is this. This flow, it went hunting, bushcraft, fieldcraft. You've kind of got this overlapping flow. They're distinctive, but they're different. If you were going to pick a blade for hunting, bushcraft, fieldcraft, I'm assuming there's no one blade, but what would you look for? Feel free to add a category in there, but what what would you look for? So, I mean, I'm going to give a shout out to Scott Gossman. Uh, Scott Gossman made my my Polaris field knife. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite knives to carry. And I mean, I've been very fortunate and very blessed to have access to many knives and have been sent many knives to test and try. And that I just keep coming back to that Polaris knife because the way that that knife was designed was from specifications first. And from the specs, I built the shape of the knife. And by going that way, as opposed to drawing a shape of a knife and then trying to make it fit a role as opposed to looking at what are the specs of a knife that you're going to use for all these purposes. A function first design philosophy. Exactly. Exactly. So the Polaris field knife has a 3.9 inch blade, four and a half inch handle, five thirty seconds thick or eighth inch thick, depending on what Scott, uh, steel Scott is using full convex grind spear point, Many people say like, oh, it looks like a, like a Puko or, oh, it's got very woodlory lines or, oh, it, 
it looks like, and they always say the knives that I drew inspiration from when I was making the averages. I'm like, well, of course it looks like that. All those patterns that have been around for hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. Wow. Man, I was it sounds like by that. I heard a wise man say that one time, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, pure Dan or what, what was it? Simply Dan. You know? um, so, <laughs> Simple Dan. So yeah, like it, and when it came out, people were like, oh, he's copying this and that. And I said, yes, I am. And like, it was funny because there, there was a, there were a lot of people that were butthurt that I was like, yeah, I, like the blade shape of the wood lore, but I want a full convex version. I don't want a Scandi. And they're like, but it's the shape of the wood lore. And I'm like, it's not quite exactly the shape of the wood lore. It's shorter. It's a spear point blade. And I have a wood lore and I can show you side by side. They're different, but it's similar. And it was just comical because there are only so many ways you can shape a knife. And I would, I would argue today that like the, uh, the most revolutionary knife design has been the tracker knife in the past 20 years, right? Like the, the WSK knife that Dave Beck got into the hunted. But I mean, you can look at a Kukri and say, Oh, is it a Kukri or is it a Copus? You know, you can look at, I mean, you can look at any one of these knives and say like, okay, there's, there's another knife in history that looks just like that. Um, so for me, I'm going with, with the Gossman Polaris. It's based off all these knives that have been around for a very long time. Specs that work for me. And, you know, that's that's going to be my, my go-to. Um, they may be sold out by the time this airs, but Atlanta Cutlery got a stash of 1900s uh, Nepalese and British military issue cookeries. See if you can see the text and my shitty camera. Um, sorry, when you start talking about the kukri, they are legit no uh, Nepalese and British military issue kukris from Nepal. Found them in the back of a warehouse somewhere, um, but they come with documentation from the Nepalese army. Oh my god! They're nineteen hundreds. They have this is the the leaf shape which is what the enlisted men would carry. And then they have a shorter version that the, uh, the officers carried. Oh my God. You had to do that. Jackass. Yes. Sorry. I, 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 as soon as you said it, I just got, I literally cleaned the Cosmoline off of it today. And then, uh, the sheath is a reproduction because the leather had just rotted away, but, and it comes with the, the two little accessories. It doesn't come with the tender kit but it comes with the two little accessory blades. So are we talking uh long leaf traditional antique kukri reproduction scabbard? Yep. Wow. That's actually a great price on that. Yeah. It was, uh, I think it was 200 bucks for yep. the, yeah. Uh, you're looking it up now. <laughs> oh, come on, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's one thirty-eight for just the, you get the first one available for the, the hand selected with a reproduction sheath. It's 200 bucks and they come with documentation. They're 1900 or later or sorry, 1900 or earlier. That's incredible. And the, I tried to do a Google translate on the, the Nepalese script on the spine of the blade. And it came back with question marks, but you can <laughs> see 
Nepalese script, and then you can see uh, Roman numerals, or not Roman, I'm sorry, Arabic numerals, which I'm pretty much sure is the the serial or the um, issue number from the British Army. What a cool piece. There you go. Spend more of Kevin's money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Beth got the credit card statement. She's like, uh, what's Atlanta cutlery and why did we spend $600 with them? I'm like <laughs> an investment. I promise you a solid investment. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. I'm sorry. While we're sidetracked, um, a friend of Ethan's, uh, Ethan Backer, had really done a deep dive into kukuris. And he decided he wanted to learn what the manual of arms with the kukuri was. What was the fighting style of the kukuri? And he wound up in Nepal speaking with a uh, subador major, which is like the equivalent of a sergeant major. And he's asking him what the what is the manual of arms? What is the the strikes? What are the eight strikes of a kukri? <laughs> this old guy goes, well, you take it and you hit them about the head and you try to bury it around their shoulders. That was the entire, that was the entire <laughs> manual of arms for a kukri. Hit them in the head and try to stop at their shoulders. Ah, there you go. <laughs> okay. All right. See, this is this is why I take Adderall. A lot, like four out of the seven listeners that we have, are they're hobbyist makers, and you know we get a lot of how did you go full time? Kyle recently went full time. I did a while back, and I mean you were safe on the island. You had a good, solid job, benefits, and you took the leap to go from teacher to to outdoor instructor like how did some combination of how did you how are you willing to do that and then how did you know when it was time like how how did you know you were you could make that transition well my friend i've mentioned his name before tom kyer uh he was really the one that told me he goes uh you've got to get out of public education he's like you've got a, a bullseye on your back you're a a white straight male right? Gun owner, uh, conservative who's working in public education. He's like, public education is a sinking ship. And, I, you know, we say it in SIOC, we say, trust your training. And I trusted to on Tom and he's like, you're going to be fine. Right. Just earn it every day, earn your place where you are every day. And that's why I made the jump, right? I made the jump because I saw an opportunity and I also knew that public education was just becoming inhospitable. Uh, it required me moving across the country, right? Moving from Connecticut to Utah. It was a fresh start that way. And I knew as long as I stayed true to what I do and I lived what I've been preaching, I would be fine. You know, there are some po folks out there who you'll meet them in the survival industry or the tactical industry and who they are online is totally different than who they are in reality. And I knew as long as I lived with integrity and I practiced what I preached, then I would be fine because no one would be able to call me a phony. No one would be able to say like, oh, he says this, but I saw him oh, over the weekend. Oh, he's not that guy. Right. And one of my standing challenges is, you know, try to find me without 
a Swiss Army knife and a lighter. Try to find me without the tools that I put out on my nightstand when I travel. And you'll never find me without those. Challenge uh, accepted. I bet I bet once you go through TSA. <laughs> right. Let's go swimming. Right. Right. Dry bag. Um, so so that that's the reason why I, I made the, the switch and I've I've not only survived, I've thrived there. It's because I'm willing to do things that other folks necessarily aren't willing to, right? Like they you know, I've heard people say like, oh, you, why would you carry all that stuff? You're not going to need it. I'm like, no, I do need it because this helps me remember what I do every single day. It helps me remember my purpose. It helps me, you know, stay grittier than the average person, you know, and the average person might say, well, I'm not going to carry that. I'll never need it until they need it. So I think the secret to success is stay real. The secret to success is be honest with yourself. and the minute that you find yourself with an ego, like, Oh, I could never do this or I'm better than that. You need to be humbled. Someone needs to humble you. Um, so I'm always willing to let that person humble me, you know, and I like knowing where my limits are, my left and my right limits. I work for a company that does a lot of tactical training and whenever they say like, Oh, you know, we need you on the range. I always tell students, I'm like, look, I bring the perspective of an armed citizen, a hunter, I can show you marksmanship. Don't ask me about when you clear a room, do you break right or break left? Like how many rooms have I cleared? You know what I mean? Like, like I'll clear my house if I have to, but I'm not the guy you want to ask that question to. Um, and vice versa. You don't want to ask the tactical guys like, Hey, how do you do a bow drill fire? You know, like you might want to ask me that. So I think the secret is be honest, be gritty and earn your spot every single day. I, there's a another vet and I were talking, and some of it's generational, but like sometimes my kids just kind of cut their eyes at me. You're talking mm-hmm. about like stuff you keep in your pocket. People, uh, a lot of people don't understand how quickly you can go from fine to fracked. It, it's a single, it's a 0.1% chance, but a lot of people don't appreciate how quickly you go from fine to not fine right now it's statistically unlikely that's going to happen but when it does happen you don't get a chance to prepare the simple things of the edc just help keep you in that mindset of it's unlikely but it could right and if you're not prepared then you're on the frack side of the line yeah one of the things that i like carried all the time in my engineering job and everybody would be like why do you carry a flashlight with you and i'm like because i'm like <laughs> I, i'm like underneath trucks and stuff all the time looking at stuff and then like after the third or fourth time i'm like you need to buy a flashlight when they're like hey can i borrow your flashlight for a second <laughs> yeah and then yeah most of most of the other engineers started uh started carrying a flashlight with no, them i don't need to buy one i've got a kyle a couple of them got the Olight ones that have all the magnet magnetic charging stuff on it. And they, they would get so used mm-hmm. to like sticking it to the side of a truck that like all of them lost them all the time. They'd stick it to the side of the truck and like they get, <laughs> they did a call and walk off and then, yeah, then they'd find it on the, on a truck like a couple days later. And I, I've got one of those, my, I drive a, a late 80s forerunner as my everyday driver. So the dome lights are just burned out and I'm not 
dealing with it. So instead of a dome light, I've got a O light that I can stick to the roll bar. Yeah. One of the O bulbs. Yep. Nice. Yeah. We've got a handful of those. <laughs> okay. So the jump from gainfully employed to slightly shady outdoor instructor. Mm-hmm. What are some things you did really well? Like, um, be it timing, be it planning. Like if somebody asks, Hey, Kevin, I'm, I'm thinking about making this step from gainfully employed to instructor, knife maker. Is there anything that you can go, Hey, here's something that I did right. Wow. Um, no pressure. I can distract for a minute. Give you a second to think. So, I mean, I still think a lot of these, these decisions that I made, whether they were right or wrong, I think they're still playing out. I think it's really important that you never burn a bridge. So I'll say I did that right. And when I left teaching, I wrote a letter to my students and I needed to explain to my students in a letter because keep in mind, it was during COVID. I didn't see all of them. Uh, And there were students who would be returning to school and would find out that I wasn't there. Right. So I wrote a letter to my students and I said, listen, guys, in your life, I want you to pursue passion. I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to, uh, you know, realize in life there are things that will push you away and draw you towards other pursuits. Um, And I said that I wasn't pushed out of teaching. I was drawn somewhere else. So I would say never burn a bridge. That is a very, very important statement. Another one I could say that I did well was I had a a plan for integration, you know, and what I mean by that was I had to coordinate selling my townhouse, moving to Utah, getting everything there, teaching. Um, I had a, a plan, you know, and I went out to Utah beforehand. I looked around, I found the place that I was going to be living, like, make sure that you have a plan. You don't just go with your gut because if you just go with your gut, you might make a bad decision, but all your decisions should be grounded in logic. So I think don't burn bridges, always have a good plan. And like I said, be honest with your capability and run an assessment of what your life will look like. You really need to do like a cost benefit analysis of, of making the, the, jump from one job to another. You need to say to yourself like, okay, I'll be making this. I'll be living here. Here's where I want to be in five years, 10 years, like apply critical decision, uh, decision-making to your life and run your life like a business. So those are the things I did well. Not a knife business, but like a a proper money-making business. (laughs) Yes, definitely not like the knife business. Yeah, because here, here's the thing, like, I just had this conversation the other night. When it comes to work, most people compromise two out of the three of the following. Your work is either going to bring you great happiness and satisfaction. It's going to give you the time to do what you want to do, or you're going to make a whole bunch of money. And there are people out there that are making a lot of money, and they're very happy that they're doing that, but they have no time. They have no time, and that's going to sacrifice their relationships. And then there are people out there that have time and they have a lot of money, but they're not happy. Right. Or there are people out there who are happy and they have time, but no money. 
you know, or, or I don't know. I'm starting to run out of scenarios here. It's getting late. Yeah. You can have only three or two of the two three. Of three, you know, and that's yeah. usually yeah. a compliment. You want fast, cheap, yeah. or good. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I was doing the taxes uh, for Cage Daily Knives and Courtney goes, you only made that much money for working the whole year? I'm like, eh. <laughs> yeah, but you, I guess happy. so. Hey, you married me. Which one of us is the idiot? So. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, now that you've made the the dive to to full time and you're working with the uh, field craft, what would you consider your your guiding principles moving forward? So guiding principles moving forward, you know, obviously I want to protect our brand. You know, I am very, very loyal to Fieldcraft. I moved across country. I've sacrificed relationships. I've given up proximity to, and yet he's still doing this podcast. That's shocking. (laughs) So I'm loyal. I'm loyal to Fieldcraft. Um, I'm always going to protect the brand. You know, and by that, I'm only going to put out good information. That's a guiding principle. Another guiding principle. I'm always going to forge the people that work with me. And what I mean by that, and your knife making friends should have should. Appreciate this when you forge your burning out and hammering out imperfections. And by forging, I can build up the people around me and I can build up the people that work with me to understand my job so I can move on to the next job. I can move on to the next promotion in the company or the next phase of my life. My goal is to have a whole group of instructors that understand how I teach and what I teach and be able to walk away at some point communication, right? I'm not always the best at communication in terms of me being way too forward and I don't gloss over things. I just stay what's on my mind. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've had counseling in terms of like, you know, you said some things that, you know, they're, they're very rude. I'm like, but were they honest? <laughs> you know, and they were honest, you know, and you might not like the way it was delivered, but the message was true. And as long as your communication is truthful, you can always, always fall back on the truth and no one will ever say that you're wrong, right? Call me, but I'm honest, <laughs> you know? Um, one of my, yeah, go ahead. One of my favorite doctors, uh, before I married Beth, I had really questionable health insurance and the doc in the box was my pretty much primary care. And there's this old dude with a heavy European, Eastern European accent. I mean, the story wrote itself. He was a doctor somewhere, Soviet bloc, moved to America, had to recredential, and he's got 40 years experience, but he's working at this dock in the box. And I kept having pain in my wrist. And I go in and see him, uh, x-ray, take an x-ray, comes in, he goes, at some point in your life, you break wrist. You were stupid and didn't get it treated. It will now hurt for the rest of your life. And, and Beth is shocked at this bedside manner. I'm like, all right, thanks, Doc. Shake his hand, pay him. And she's all shocked. I'm like, no, no, he, he didn't waste my time. He's right. I did break my wrist and I didn't get it treated. And it will now hurt for the rest of my life. And I won't waste my time coming back for another doctor because it's just going to hurt. People really underestimate or underappreciate the value of just be upfront. Yeah. Be honest. Yeah. Well, don't waste my time. I I don't need 30 minutes of sugarcoating. Yeah. Bad news is coming one way or another. So those, that's how I'm going to move forward. That's, that's a pretty solid principle. 
you know? And then the final thing is just building, right? Like I'm always going to build the brand. I'm going to bring in partners that I feel are, are helpful. I'm not going to bring in anything that destroys the brand, but I will bring in things that build it. So those are the four guiding principles I have, you know, communicate, build, protect, and forge. That would fit really well on a t-shirt. Yeah. Good thing our company has a carousel t-shirt maker. We could probably make those. <laughs> Everyone in the company has to wear them to all the the company hey, meetings. Could I get that in an extra Could I get that in an extra small? Yeah. Belly shirt. <laughs> okay. So when our other listener decides he's ready to take a class with you, when, where, how? So just go to fieldcraftsrevival.com. And you can click on training and there's multiple ways you can filter our class offerings, whether it's by topic, medical, firearms, survival, navigation. Um, you can filter it by location, whether it's Utah, North Carolina, one of our affiliate ranges around the country. You know, my course yeah, is South Carolina. Yeah, <laughs> South Carolina is coming up. Uh, that is going to be the advanced survival experience. Uh, advanced survival experience is going to be a th- basically like three, two nights. Uh, that's the important part, the two nights, and yeah. it's going to be the, the practical application of skills. So we have a one day class where it's very gear oriented, because if I can teach you the gear that you need to carry, I can already get you to like a 90% solution of how to survive. We have a two day course where it's skills oriented, and that's where you're using a handful of gear items to get through multiple scenarios and learn skills. And then the advanced survival experience there are certain scenario items, or I should say scenarios that we run where you have to carry a certain gear on you and problem solve and survive in a very interesting environment, which we'll be able to run that one on the Pacific Northwest as well as South Carolina, uh, duplicating those courses. You can suck it up almost anything for one night. It's the second night where you really get the lesson hammered home. (laughs) Yep. That's absolutely the case. Like the exhaustion level goes through the roof uh, on that, that 48 hour period. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, I can't think of anything at the moment. I mean, we should always, you know, plan on having the first podcast, make people want to tune into the second one. So I'll definitely do another one. Um, maybe we'll come up with more questions by then. I'm going to wake up in the morning with at least seven questions that I should have asked that I didn't because we got distracted and Kyle didn't keep me focused. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And where where can people keep in touch with you, Kevin? So Instagram is pretty easy. Uh, That's at Estella Wild Ed, E-S-T-E-L-A-W-I-L-D-E-D. Estella Wild Ed. I had to think about that for a second. Um, Estella at FieldCraftsRival.com is my email. And those are really the two best places to reach me. Um, And hopefully in a few minutes, well, you won't be able to catch me, but I'll be in Betty by. What about your fans only account? Oh yeah. You know, all, all the feet picks. Yeah. Those are, (laughs) those are all out there. (laughs) That'd be large Brown Asian. uh... (laughs) Yeah. You know, I (laughs) big old gangly toes that look like I can hang upside down from the tree limbs. Oh, that that right there is why I'm going to hell. 
All right. And you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find the podcast uh, anywhere you're listening to it. And you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com, Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook, Instagram. And he loves emails, so send him emails at dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. And uh, you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives at Cage Daily Knives on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, TikTok. And Kyle at CageDailyKnives.com is my. Thank you very much, Kevin. And uh, we'll let you get get going to bed. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. <laughs> All right. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. Well, let's take it to the edge. Because that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective.